Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. On X Hunt Elite is worth every penny. It really is. Every hunt, every planning session, every gear purchase, I was on it already today. With your Elite membership, you will get application and draw odd tools, exclusive pro deals on gear from the industry's best, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage. And now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite will make you more successful on your next hunt. Try Onyx Hunt free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new Elite membership. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Uh, Giannis, how... Um you know, if you talk about what's written on your hand, you're gonna get <laughs> you're gonna get an enormous amount of feedback. That's fine. A lot of like what you really ought to do. Yeah. And what I would do, and what he's doing wrong. Listen, there's where he's a, there was a up. fella in town from Tennessee visiting my brother-in-law. He found out that I've got a blue tick that uh, you know I'm looking to do some training with. And uh, he just had to meet me to give me my give me his two cents about the whole situation, which I did, and it was great. It was informative, you know. He runs plots for bears there in Tennessee, but uh, you know, I was I was glad to take it. So yeah, we can talk about it, and uh, I'll read some emails. Uh, What's written on his hand? Coon, coon, C O O N. Meaning here's how here's how not a trapper Yanni is. I have never, in all my experience with trappers, I have never met a trapper who is at risk of forgetting to check his traps. That's all they think about. They'd be like writing breathe. Like, don't forget to breathe on your hand. But Yanni had to remind himself to go see if he's got a coon. Yeah. Well, mostly because right now we're very centrally located between my home and where this trap is. And your set. trap line. And I don't want to <laughs> get home and then have to turn around and drive an extra 15 minutes the other direction to go hopefully get my raccoon. And, uh, and you need the raccoon for? 
I'm going to introduce Mangus, the uh, blue tick, <laughs> the blue tick hound dog, to a raccoon. If, if you want to give Yanni some valuable feedback, tell him that he named his dog all wrong. Mingus. It's a great name. We could have named I think it. it. Sounds like a disease. Did you like? Did you hear Yanni got Mingus real bad? <laughs> That's what I could picture saying to somebody. Most of the world really <laughs> likes that name. It's a musician, right? Yeah, Charles Mangus plays jazz. Used to play jazz. See what you. happened to him? Died. Hmm. That's a good name origin. Mm-hmm. He, here in in our home state, here, uh, you raccoons are non-game. They're not listed as a fur bear. Mm-hmm. It's kind of gloves off on raccoons. Yeah, same with uh, rabbits, squ- squirrels, mm-hmm. or at least the fox squirrels. And your goal here in the end is to have a versatile hunting dog. Yeah. No, hound dog. Versatile hound dog. Uh, we'll see. He's very birdie on the grouse. Very. And he's not ranging too far, which could be a problem because Jake's like, How's well, he going to catch a lion? Exactly. He needs to be able to cut loose and go on a you know, tour by himself for two, three, four hours sometimes. But... I mean, when we've been running trails, he's not ranging too far, you know? He's been doing good. But I can tell you, when he gets on a hot deer track, he's got no problem ranging and, and going out of, out of you know, uh, audible range. I'm curious about your level of bloodthirstiness here. Um, let's say the, 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 the dog is super good. Isn't? No, is. Okay. Let's say he does like to run mountain lions. He likes to run coons. Mm-hmm. Do you picture becoming a recreational runner, or are you going to be killing everything at trees, and you're just going to have all kind of dead raccoons laying around? Oh, for the raccoons? Yeah. Uh, or would it just be like a little thing you go out and do? It, now it'll and then? be something in in the in in the middle, I, I imagine. I mean, if someone's if someone wants to hide, if someone wants to shoot the coon and, and wants to hide, then sure, we'll shoot them. And um, how many lions? Because a lot of lion because. I know. A lot of lion Most hunters. Most lion hunters aren't Jake, killing. He, I don't think Jake's got one in a decade, even though he trees yeah. umpteen of them a year. Yeah, he put up, I think, close to 30 this winter. I never shot a one of them. Mm-mm. The other day, I, I we're still eating it. Uh, I was down in New Mexico, and we had a thing called Frito Pie. You guys know what Frito Pie is? No. Go ahead, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell people what Frito Pie is. This is our special guest. <clears throat> I've only seen them at Sonic back home. Frito Pie with Fritos and chili. And cheese. That's they what sell we that at Sonic? Yeah. Ramsey, just a little, exactly. bit, a little bit closer to the mic. And yeah. say your name. Ramsey Russell. And say what you like to do. Kill ducks. Hunt <laughs> ducks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I, I mean, what do you call Frito pie? I, I Somehow, I don't understand. I never knew it existed. Hold on. Tell me again. It's Fritos with what? All right. Corn chip, chili cheese, onions, jalapenos. Yeah. That's so like I was down in New Mexico, and they made... Chili with, he made like elk, but you know, like people in New Mexico get all hopped up about it. Like, oh, yeah, it's like, oh, my hat's chilies and on and on and on. And they made very good New Mexican style chili in a pot. And you bring that out hunting with you, just in a Tupperware. And then you got cheese, onions, jalapenos, whatnot. Then you take a bunch of Frito Lay corn chips and like cereal. In a bowl. And instead of putting milk on it, you dump chili on it. Instead of putting sugar on that, you put jalapenos and cheese and whatnot on there and scallions. Mm-hmm. 
on like how I didn't know about that is embarrassing. But you certainly had chili. But I just made with, it with mountain lion since I got home. You've certainly had chili with corn chips in it. I've put corn chips on it. Yeah. That's not what this is. It's corn chips. The layering factor. It's not like a spring. It's like the the relationship between the chili. Ratio is what you're trying to say, right? The ratio between the chili and the corn chips Mm -hmm. is that of cereal and milk. Okay. Not that of between clam chowder and oyster crackers. So I made a giant batch of that with the last mountain lion I had. Yeah. It still said 2017 on the package. Mm. I braised it down. Yeah, I think I've got one loin left. No, it wasn't from the one. It was one that uh, Pete gave to me. Oh, you know what? No, because mine said 2017 on it. I had my last bag of my own, and then I had some that Pete gave me. God, this stuff is good, though, man. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't think I'd be letting all those lions run. No, I don't plan on letting. I wouldn't let them all run. get away. Yeah, but I'm a long ways from there. Mingus not you have even a lot. caught one yet. Mingus not have a lot of work to do <laughs> before we had to make those kind of decisions. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a little ahead of you on that one. Ain't I? Well, <laughs> although Bart George, if you're listening, Jake said, you know what you ought to do is you need to call your buddy over there in Washington, who's treeing more lions than anybody I know because he's. He's doing it for the government. You can't even run hounds anymore in Washington, but he's working for the government, doing all kinds of research. And where most houndsmen, I think, you know, you're doing really well if you're like Jake and you're putting up, you know, um, a 25 or so. But this guy, he is putting up 20 in a month. He's like, you need to just take Mingus out there. Oh, do some government work. And just hang out with with him for a week, he says. Because what Jake keeps telling me is like somewhere between seven and twelve. I think those were the numbers. Somewhere in that range is where your your dog is going to either get it and be like finished and ready to roll on his own, or seven to twelve tree lions. Oh, they meant uh, years. No, no, no. I was like, that's also where they die. <laughs> seven to twelve tree lions to where it, it, if he's gonna get it or she. They've got it, and they can go on their own. If they if they don't, then he's like, I'll probably start to get worried and start to think about moving that dog on to somebody that's not going to hunt him. Um, he had a dog get killed by a lion this year. You did. Bit it right in the head. Yeah. What's crazy is that after that, those dogs, man, they have such a one track mind when they're when they have that smell in their nose. After that, when he came up to the dog, he didn't know yet what had happened. And the dog's still going on the trail. Because after that, the lion had jumped and gotten treed like a couple hundred yards down the ridge or whatever by the other dog. And uh, the one that had been bitten is still working the track. And But then he kind of started looking a little closer and realized, you know, she wasn't quite quite right. But, uh, yeah. It doesn't happen often. But, boy, I've been really warned by my family, my girls, that that goes down with me because I'm going to have hell to pay. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but Floyd down in Arizona, those guys were telling us a story about treeing a lion that was in a tree on top of a rock spire, which you can picture down in Arizona, right? Mm-hmm. Like some juniper or whatever, like with its roots like grown into the cracks of a rock. Mm-hmm. So anyways, it's in such a position, and the dog somehow got up there. But They got up there in the dark, and they couldn't get up there with the dogs. And the dogs are on the rock spire with a lion in a tree. 
they came back in the morning in the middle of the night that dog had come down or the lion had come down killed both the dogs ate one of them mm. and went about its business making lemon out of or you know lemonade you know what i'm trying to say yeah uh corinne got her ass handed to her I did. Crin went, <laughs> Crin went spouting off at the mouth about GMO strawberries. I never use that expression. And the more I think about it, I don't really know. Like, I get it, but I don't really get it. Like, uh, implying that it was detached. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, right? I think it means that maybe, like, you got it whooped. So no, I'm saying, how would that come? Where would that come from? Steve is taking it literally. Like well, literally, we like had this conversation like... <laughs> yesterday. Someone said a, a similar conversation yesterday, where someone said we we had a small part of an idea, and we were agreeing in a meeting to expand upon the idea. And someone said, "Well, let's flesh it out." Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, okay. <laughs> One thing you could be saying, like, okay, here's this skeleton of an idea, and we will add flesh. Onto it. Yeah. To make it grow. Yeah. That's the, that doesn't seem like what they're getting at. When you flesh something, you're reducing. Okay. You're taking a hide and scraping it clean. Mm-hmm. I think that to say, to flesh an idea out would be that you have this big, cumbersome, ill-formed, over-ideated yeah, idea. You're scraping the gristle. And to flesh it out would mean that you're going to reduce it down to like a crystalline clear idea handing asses to people i don't know um got her ass handed to her about a, a off comment she made about gmo strawberries which really got people riled up yeah people are riled up and there's two that were shared with me and they show that the breadth of uh you know the the breadth of personalities that we speak to on the show because one is very polite and he's like, sorry for the rant, but this is the most common fallacy and on and on. And I always open, I always believe in sharing information and we can all grow together and healing and hearing. And then another guy, uh, where's the one that he writes in? <laughs> other guy, subject line, stop your nonsense, dash strawberries. <laughs> and then <laughs> goes to talk about how stupid everybody is. <laughs> and how horrible Crin is. <laughs> so you can you can pick it up, Crin, with whatever, whichever of these gentlemen, um, whichever of these gentlemen, whatever approach you want to take. You could be like, listen, asshole. Or you could say, um, yeah, in, in spirit of conversation, I will tell you what I was talking about. Yeah, definitely. I take the, I take the latter approach. Um, yeah, if I stand to be corrected then I stand to be corrected. You know, I, I think that in the spirit of not replicating and putting out information that is not backed up or that is not correct, um, I totally That's our welcome spirit. that. That's our spirit. That's here. our spirit. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's if, if it's like emphatically said with a little grumble and a little, uh, I, I, what's his name? I, I won't share his name. I hear you. I hear the You're frustration. You're talking to the mad guy. I am. I hear you. And I appreciate that you wrote in. What I was referring to, and I I, I stand corrected. Um, oh, you're not going to double down? No, because I'm probably wrong. I okay. mean, I yeah, I haven't done all the extensive research 
because a lot of people wrote in. You weren't alone. Um, a lot of folks wrote in. One thing that was interesting to me was. Uh, I, I got to set the scene a little bit better. Okay. Yeah, uh, we haven't I'm done not... any scene setting. Yeah. Okay. We were talking about how is it that you can have such a giant, bad, like where does Costco get these gigantic strawberries that don't taste like anything? Why are they so big? Why do they look so good and taste so mm-hmm. bad? And why is it that you can't grow a bad strawberry in your garden? Right. Like you can't. Yeah. And, I've and, never picked a strawberry from someone's garden that wasn't like, now that's a strawberry. And thank you to the, uh, I believe it was a PhD student who, who wrote in. Yeah, Bob Sears. And yep, thanks, Bob. And and offered some answers about that. We can probably go into that later. Want me to cover that while you prepare to talk about the GMO comment? Corinne's sure. response was something about how it's probably something to do with GMO-ness. Right, right. And, and how they bred them with fish. Right. So there is a <laughs> there is <laughs> there is a 2000 article, year 2000, from the New York Times. Uh, I've also seen some other things floating out there on the internet. And obviously we have to be very careful with what sources we pay attention to. Um, but I had not revisited this topic for years before I said what I said on the last podcast. And so the information that I had downloaded into my brain that I was walking around with was that one of the reasons why uh, we have large strawberries that remain frost-resistant, or they, I should say, they stay fresh and beautiful and plump-looking for so long that it seems unnatural, is because they are... A strain, a part of a, a, this, I might be using the incorrect terminology here, uh, a gene from or a protein from Arctic char combined with the strawberry actually makes the strawberry frost resistant and helps to preserve it for longer. To all you scientists out there, I hope that um, that was a kind of basic but but that's not true and, and but apparently that's not true what hopefully we get a lot more people writing in about this what i have seen is that stuff like that does exist i mean there are scientists testing gene hybridization to make some fruits or vegetables taste a certain way or to extend the freshness of like it's not that this doesn't exist and so, actually, maybe I should call up our our uh, listener who wrote in and have a conversation about this and get and kind of and, do a, and a flesh, follow, it out. flesh it out, <laughs> flesh, flesh it down, out. and do um, a follow up report. Yeah, I think that would be very helpful. But uh, from the FDA.gov site that he sent in the email, it says GMO crops, animal food, and beyond. The question is, what GMO crops are grown and sold in the United States, and they are corn, soybean, cotton, potato, papaya, summer squash. Hold on, let me just make sure that there aren't like fifty-seven things. No, on this it's not list. a long but, list. Yeah, uh, alfalfa, apple, sugar beet, and that's it. And yeah, there's so, no, yeah, there's, there's no, no GMO strawberry. strawberry. No yeah. GMO strawberry has been approved. Yeah. What he does go on to say is, people shop with their eyes. And they don't shop with their tastes. Mm. 
and he says that when you go into the store and see some giant strawberry, all they're going for is they're going for it has to pop to your eye, and it has to be rugged and handle well and last a long time. And so there's different ways that they control the nutrients availability and when you pick it and all this, um, that you get that that ruggedness and eye-popping bigness, and no one cares what they taste like. Do you have any strawberries popping in your garden right oh, now? Yeah, but they don't last. The kids eat them. Oh, I'm gonna stop by and steal some. Well, you, if you stop by, you'll like get one. <laughs> they check them re- frequently. They're though. in there all the time, and they've taken to eating the carrots, which are not like not big, even quite they're like ready, they're pinky, yeah. big long pinkies. Um, I have a very, very, very close person to me who I can't name because he works for an agency. Um. And he needs to be tiptoey about when he's speaking for who and what. He was like, oh, he goes, uh, you can get rid of GMO stuff. You better plan on starving off about a third of the planet. But go ahead. Um, I have, just at this is me speaking personally, I have zero, like zero problem with GMO stuff. And I'll point out that there's never been anyone that could prove in any thing that would get scholarly consensus that there is a health implication from eating GMO foods. There's just not as up as off putting as that is to people. Cause people want to hate them so bad. Um, there's nothing, there's nothing. It's a pretty robust dialogue though. Wouldn't you say? Please. Hansi. I like earlier you introduced yourself, Hansi. You've never been on the show before. No, I haven't. I'm and Ramsey, our guest said Hansi like Fonzi. Yeah. I never thought of that. That's an easy way to easy way to remember it. Okay, give me your take on the robust dialogue. I've I eating come, I, GMO, not like what GMO does to crop systems, no. how it affects irrigation, pesticide use, herbicide, like none of that crap. No, I think you're. I mean, I think you're, you're on the money with with saying there's no like verifiable way to say this is what it does right but it's only been around so long right Mm -hmm. i mean we're talking we're not talking about like breeding uh like different crops and splicing uh different kind of crops together like one kind of apple with another kind of apple as the gmo it's the genetically modified seems like the the dialogue is more talking about like marker assisted selection or, or some of these like really specific ways of genetically modifying which have i mean how long have those been around like how how do you do any multi-generational studies on that kind of thing i don't know i i don't have the answer but it seems like that's a that's a awesome question like meaning the assumption is there that someone will turn something bad up yeah like so let's start acting like they're bad ahead of time no no but the downstream consequences exist right we just don't know what they are yet. So how do we how do we even ask a good scientific question? You know, how do we do the scientific method if we can't ask a good question yet? Likewise, I think that it's you're in the same situation when you want to say that they're bad. Totally, I agree. I'm just saying that the the dialogue is good. It's a good like oh, no, it's I think a it's good ethical debate going on here. I don't think it's as good of a debate as why to, why are the strawberries at Costco taste like dog shit. <laughs> Like, yeah, that's, that's a real that's question. Good. That's good. A <laughs> uh, couple other quick things. I need to give a, a, a Father's Day shout out to a guy named Dylan Shrupka. This is for 
Father's Day 2021. Um, happy Father's Day, Dylan Shrupka. And then also, we have a thing we got to talk about real quick. We've, we've come on the radar of the ass movement. And the ass movement is uh, – Yanni, break down the ass <laughs> movement for me. <clears throat> That's so good. Ass stands for uh, anti-surface shitting. And it's been a while since I've read this letter that um, we've gotten a lot. Of, do you want one of these? Sure. Do you oppose people just going into the woods and, and defecating on the surface and not digging a cat hole? Cover your shit. Oh, so there you remember. You can find uh, uh, the anti-surface shitting um, that you can find on what's their social media handle at the guy's last name is Booze. Interestingly, at the ass movement. So that's at the underscore A underscore S underscore S. Can you check this, Corinne? Underscore movement. Can you say that again? The ass movement. The anti-surface shitting movement. Trying to instruct people, inspire people um, to uh, not defecate just out in the woods. And leave their toilet paper blowing in the breeze. Yeah, th- and, and this fellow's, um, I think he lives and recreates on the Kenai Peninsula yeah, in Alaska. Of, of Alaska. And he said it doesn't matter he's if a he's firefighter. fighting fire or hunting or fishing. He just says it's out of control. He says he sees way too much of this shit, in quotes. Um, it's a real problem, and uh, there needs to be awareness around it. And uh, which is why we talked about it the other day on the podcast about doing about what our proper protocol was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what inspired this. His yeah. last name is legitimately Booze. Mm-hmm. I used to want to change my last name to Fever, Steve Fever, but now I'm jealous of Booze. That, uh, that's that's real cute. And you don't like my dog's name of Mingus, huh? No, if my name was Steve Fever by birth. <laughs> so, uh, Corinne, can you double check that I'm getting this right on Instagram? Yeah, it is. The, Found him. Yep. How many followers? Oh, hold on. Let, mm. I was going to read Six million? Out. Hold on, let's see. The ass movement on Instagram. Well, they were just established in 2020, and uh, they've got 1,183 uh, followers at the moment. So on their Instagram page, do you go and post pictures of poops that you found in the woods? Let's see. Uh, well... So far, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling. I see a lot of stickers and poo emojis, but I want to. <laughs> I wanted to point out. <laughs> I want to point out. I'm on the the firewild.com, and that's and the ass movement is a uh, is part of this organization. Well, he's a photographer too, so I don't want him mixing business and pleasure here. Okay. Well, is the ass movement site? For people to coalesce around the idea that you should not poop on, in the woods so it's, outside it's of a hole? So it's confusing because it's the ass movement and it's the firewild.com, who we are. Firewild is a wildland firefighter-owned company and brand. Firewild owns and established the ass movement in 2020 <laughs> out of disgust and disappointment in seeing the tissue issue. On fires, trails, and all other public lands enjoyed in the great outdoors. I think that what he should morph... (laughs) That's deep. (laughs) I think that he should morph his site into a place where you go to post... You know what we did our river cleanup, our river access cleanup? I brought latex gloves, and I picked up discarded camp money. 
Mm. Mm. With my latex gloves on and mm. bagged up discarded camp money. That's real mm. dedication. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, I think he should. It should be a place where you go post pictures of soiled wildlands when you come across evidence of surface scatting. There is some of that in here. Hmm. How, only one thousand followers. Yeah. Is there anybody that would like be counter to this? I mean, it seems like such an <laughs> obvious yes, like, yes. Oh my gosh. Oh no, I'm gonna go poop no, on not the counter to it, it. But do like, okay, do 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 meth heads um do are, are meth heads pro meth? <laughs> <laughs> or are they just meth heads? Yeah. No, I'm asking. What do you think? I haven't met a meth head yet who's like Got his like pro meth T-shirt. Like I'm like. I think surface shitters like, yes. are like meth heads. <laughs> yeah, they just they can't help it. Had not thought about it. They got trapped up in a lifestyle. Life no, I think you're giving them too much credit <laughs> if you're saying that. I seriously like the first time that it came to like at a. I mean, we didn't. We weren't gonna quite fist fight over it, but there was we had like Who, an, you and me. No, another oh. another fella down in Arizona. We had like a quiet hour long ride back to camp. Because he surface scat. I had seen other signs of surface shitting before we went out into the woods. And I talked and mentioned it. I was like, God, I can't believe that, you know? And then, like, we get back to the truck, or I don't forget, at some point, whatever, he runs off to supposedly go flip a rock, comes back, and then it gets light. And I look over and I'm like, hold on, is that yours right there? After you talked about it. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah. Like that's how we roll down here, and and well, who's we? Him and the other surface scatters. I don't don't know Arizona. I've heard heard that though in the desert that like you're supposed to like smear it like on a like to to not like disrupt cryptobiotic soil. Yes, that is, but that does not involve. That's bringing your teepee, Mm -hmm. bringing your teepee out. Yeah, or depending on conditions, you could always torch your teepee. Though there have been. I've been trying to get Spencer Newhart to do an article about all the um, crazy things that have started forest fires. There was a teepee burning situation that started a big forest fire. There was a situation where some guys were having a gender reveal party. When I thought, when I heard this story, I in my head thought that it was someone changing their gender, and that was the party. But it wasn't. It was someone who's um, yeah, and they and they his buddies filled a tannerite thing. With the appropriate colored powder, so that he could shoot it with his rifle, and it would blow up pink or blue, and he would find out if he's having a boy. I'm not joking. That started a big forest fire. A woman burning love letters. Her job, she was like a Forest Service employee, yep, burning one. love letters, and started a big forest fire. And yeah, and it was a teepee burning scenario. So be careful burning your teepee. However, yeah, there are places where you're supposed to smear on rocks. One of my favorite stories about Flippin' Rock, you know this happened to Mo Fallon. Ramsey, you're probably getting concerned that we're not even going to get to you. No, I'm fine. Okay. I'm enjoying this, man. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, Okay, this is a funny story. So we were filming in Hawaii years ago, and one of our camera guys, Mo, he got there early or something because he wanted to surf. He's got a a rental car. He, like, rents a car, rents a surfboard, gets down to the beach, he doesn't know what to do with his keys. So he finds this like conspicuous, easily identified rock and lifts the rock up and throws the keys under the rock and then goes and surfs. So 
gets done surfing and he comes back up to the rock and flips the rock, but there's no keys. And he's like, ah, must've been another rock. So then he starts getting into a panic, running around, flipping all these rocks. None of the rocks look like the same rock, goes back, lifts up the rock again, no keys. Eventually he realizes that someone had taken a growler, had rolled the rock out, took a growler, put the rock back, but the growler stuck to the rock so that when Mo put his keys in, the the deuce trying to use <laughs> the poo cement captured the keys and when he would lift the rock up the keys would ride up with the rock <laughs> and only way later did he finally get around to looking and realize the keys and then he had to you know get them all cleaned up so next time you rent a car in Hawaii <laughs> don't lick the keys <laughs> Um, can I just circle back to one thing? To yeah, you want to get back into your strawberry problem? No, not okay. right. <laughs> um, Hanzi, introduce yourself. Yeah, Hanzi works for us. Yeah, I'm a video editor here, uh, Hanzi Deschermeyer. A lot of lot of letters there, but it's phonetic. And H A N Z I Deschermeyer. Yeah, long one. You don't have to worry about that one. That's, but. And um, this is uh, your first... It's my first yeah. podcast the, ever. Watch this ever. segue. You ready? Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, the reason Hansi's in here is he's an enthusiastic hunter of ducks. Fanatic, even. A Maybe. duck fanatic. And what better conversation for you to participate in than one with our guest... Ramsey Russell. Get ducks. <laughs> Proud to be here. Is that clapping for your segue? Or for oh, no, no, no. I was clapping to introduce the guest. That was a good segue. <laughs> that was a good segue. <laughs> I'm impressed with that, actually. So you uh, t- tell everybody what you're doing right now. 30 years ago, I had heard misinformation. It was misinformation. I wish I was in good enough shape to pedal across the country again. But 30 years ago, I was 24, much younger, and a college roommate and I rode bicycles from Bar Harbor, Maine, out to the Olympic Peninsula just because we were young, and it was there. 30 years later, there's a stick in our spokes. Nobody's traveling. We, his job's interrupted. My job's interrupted. He calls up and says, hey, let's go spin around for a couple of weeks, camp and bike. I said, let's do it. So you're doing kind of the same thing, but you're just interrupting the biking with driving. Yeah. Driving and just meeting with people and doing things. It's more like a day trip. We, we drive here. We stop. We stay for a few days. We spin around and bike ride like we're at home and go to the next destination. So have you stayed in an enthusiastic bicyclist over the years no there's been there was a long absence when i got busy and worked and did some other things but yeah i, I try to stay in shape you know so i I like to ride bicycles you know think about riding a bicycle versus real working out i feel like a kid who doesn't feel like a kid riding a bicycle mm-hmm, i agree but it was a, it was a heck of a summer steve and it you know it, it's uh we were just riding a bicycle and rode across the country and had a great time but i see i see now we're seeing america 50 miles a day versus 80 miles an hour, it just created this wanderlust. It mm-hmm. became manifesting what came later down the road. Uh, what state were you born in? Mississippi. Is that born, where you live now? Born and raised, yep. I heard, I caught you saying earlier, I overheard you saying when you're out in the lobby there, that you appeared on a TV thing once and they subtitled you? Oh my gosh, yes, way, way back when, uh, 15, 20 years ago, it was a outdoor television show and everybody had nice accents like yourselves, and they subtitled <laughs> me. 
And, and I was trying to emulate and adopt, you know, the correct pronunciation of words I've since given up. Uh, but they actually subtitled me. So I'd ask Hansi, how are y'all going to subtitle me today? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Sam also, Sam, uh, who we heard about you from or through. Yeah, Sam was our talent a, scout. Yeah, said you had a, a really nice drawl. So. That's a good description. Got a face for radio and an accent for Andy Griffith. Um, tell people what you do for a living. We, we really, we get ducks. And I, lo- I love to say that, you know, when you meet somebody and you say, how are you? I'm fine. What do you do? I get ducks. Huh? But really we, uh, we, we sell international duck hunts. We sell duck hunts on six continents. Duck hunting adventures, I should say. How come not on seven? I hadn't found any on Antarctica yet. Are there? I don't think so. Too cold. Yeah. I didn't know if on the edge of it somehow at some point in time, some some uh, pelagic, you know, Australia's about duckish as close critter. To, uh, Australia's about as close as I'm aware. Maybe Tasmania. It, it, I, I don't know how much closer you can get to Antarctica. If there's ducks on Antarctica, somebody let me know. I'm heading that way. Um, so you, you've personally hunted ducks on six continents. Yes, sir. How many kinds of ducks? Uh, I, believe I, I believe I've shot to, you know, when I include subspecies, um, 112 subspecies of waterfowl plus um let's say another nine of the north american canada geese so 123 subspecies yeah but the number of north american canada geese taxonomists keep reducing it it went from like 23 to two i think it's 11 well it's 11 now you've got you've got canada geese which are the big ones cackler geese which are the small ones you've got seven subspecies so they still accept that i thought that they, they keep like reduce. you know like genet- uh, with genetics everything either Gets more complicated or less complicated, but nothing has stayed the same. I think I think they subgroup them into Canada's and Cacklers more for a, a, a sportsman's list. But they really are. If you look, there's no there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, subpopulation of Canada geese. When you get into it, they're 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 breeding and their migrations are, are isolated. I mean, they just are. Um, trying to think of one real quick: the dusky Canada goose comes down the Pacific Flyway. The interior start up and it's up in the Arctic and kind of come down to mid towards the Mississippi Flyway through Ottawa Valley and, and peel over. The James Bay population of the interiors come from a similar area, but they're, they're, they don't overlap. And you can see that on band recoveries. So you've got you've got these little populations of Canada geese. Now, whether they're becoming uh, hybridized, who knows? But, but no, I still accept. I think they're still accepted to be 11 total subspecies of Canada geese. Canada's, and you've Canada's got all Canada's. those. I need two. I need, I need two of the Pacific ones that I'm aware. I need the dusky. Probably have to go to Copper River, uh, Alaska area to to get on those good. And I need uh, what I believe I need is the uh, the Vancouver, which is endemic more or less uh, in the breeding area to British Columbia. What? Uh, how'd you get? I'm just curious. Like like uh, how'd you even get into the path that would lead you to being like an international? Oh boy, a, a, a world traveling duck guide. I was working for the U.S. federal government. I, I went to college, wanted to be a wildlife biologist, became a forester, and wanted, I really, I, I left the deep south to go up north in Canada to go, I wanted to shoot Canada geese, migrator Canada geese, real Canada geese, and experienced the prairies. And I went and uh, brought some friends. The first trip we I booked uh, to Canada was a just a disaster. Anybody that's booked enough hunts knows they exist. It's just nothing like nothing like it was represented to be, and just a complete and utter cluster. 
And I began to do my due diligence and met another outfitter in Alberta and brought a few friends. And the following year, a few more, and the following year, a few more. And he called me outside and said, hey, uh, I'd like you to be my booking agent. I'm like, what the hell is a booking agent? I'm a, gov- I'm a forester for the U.S. federal government. But he explained it to me, and I started off just, okay, I'll help bring some hunters to this guy. And things spun out of hand. I mean, it just one step, one one. It just it just spun out of hand slowly but surely. I did I did not start out to say I'm going to hunt six continents and sell hunts on six continents. It just happened. So are you still a are you primarily a booking agent now, or you you I'm have a, your I'm own a, guiding? No, outfit. I'm a booking agent. I'm a booking agent. You know, there's there's so many mental steps, and what we do, and I hate that word booking agent because there's a lot of nefarious ones out there in this business that, that there? don't do their due diligence. You know, and, and it's very important to me. That, it, that if I'm going to represent to you that this hunt is better than some of the other ones down there, that I've been there myself, and I, but I've been to them all. So we go to them, and we scout them. And, and we've gotten off in the bushes to where Argentina, for example, you know, a lot of our outfitters down there, we found them, we developed them. They don't exist online. They don't exist, period, except through us. And, there, and there's some really a pretty amazing hunts. And, and I'll say just in terms of, in terms of um, the overall experience when we go hunting, we don't cater to five-star. If you want a five-star hunt, take your wife to New York or Italy. If you want a, you want a real hunting adventure. You know, and, and, and here's, how, here's how I differentiate, Steve, is you can go to any of those continents, any of those countries we've been to and stay at the Hilton. But it's not the Azerbaijan experience if you stay at the Hilton. It's not the, 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 the Argentine experience. It's the Hilton experience. Yeah. I want to see real Argentina. And that's where that's where we diverge, and we we've just cultivated good long term relationships with a lot of outfitters, um, and built the program. My wife and I, it's a very small company, but my wife and I handle this side of it, explaining the hunt, the logistics, getting you there, picking up the phone assistance, and stuff like that. Uh, this is off subject, ducks, but do you have any hot leads on um? What are you laughing about? Because I was the whole time he was explaining that, I was thinking, man, Steve's going to ask him where he can go get one of them uh, turkeys. Are you familiar with what a super slam turkey holder is? You're looking at one, not toward Giannis. When you say say super slam, (laughs) when you say super slam, you're not talking the uh, Not a world slam. What is a super slam then? A super slam turkey holder such as myself? That means you've gotten all five varieties of the american wild turkey okay now where can one go from there oscillators and ghouls i already did ghouls okay if i had you done ghouls you'd be looking at a, a mere grand slam holder you need the oscillated to become the pinnacle okay of a turkey man no and that that is an which amazing is called a what's it called when you world world slam turkey holder at which point I will get my World Slam turkey holder tattoo. But uh, <laughs> meaning, I, I, like, we want to go down and hunt oscillated turkeys bad is what I'm getting at. But we're no, trying to, to find the right. I, wanna, I don't want to be shooting a field turkey coming out some field. I want to be out in the jungle. You want to be in the jungle. You, that, and that's what I was fixing to say. You and don't, I don't want to stay at the Hilton. No, no. You want to be, be in a tent camp in the jungle. Riding dirt bikes through the jungle. Roaring. No, that's where that's where you exactly want to be. And how do you hunt? And, you know, as a non-turkey hunter, I've killed ten turkeys in my life, and I need the Miriams just so you know, so I can be that guy in your in your crowd. 
I love the isolated turkey hunt those for the adventure here sometimes. Well, Can't get them here. Let so me know. It's a little tricky. Well, no, I mean, well, no but the, that latest research that came out, didn't you read that email that we got? Are our turkeys corrupted? Oh, they're saying that basically all the Western United States, because of the stocking efforts from 20, 30 years ago, there ain't a pure one left. They're just hodgepodge. They're just turkeys. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I've got a lead for you on the perfect Don't jung- say it right experience. now. I won't, but I've got I've got the lead. And uh, you'll love it. And I love it. And, 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 can they bump us to the front of the line? Because we want to go this winter. <laughs> we want to go this winter. March, you, whatever. You want to go You want to go mid-April next year is when you want to go. That, but mm-hmm. what you need to start, I know, but you need to start getting the rains in the jungle. It, it's, it's a dry. You know, it's, it, don't think jungle like lush jungle. Think very deserty jungle. Very dry jungle. I know that jungle. Like Yucatan jungle. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Yucatan yeah. jungle. And, and you need a little precipitation so that the cantors start to sing. But if you go too late, like in May, now you've got all the, the young birds, Jake's fighting and everything's torn up. You want to go mid to late April. Hmm. And you can hunt them. Uh, of course, you know, a real true turkey hunter from the south doesn't want to, he wants to call them in and interact with them and bring them in. And isolated, just, he's more like a game bird than a turkey. You bushwhack them. You, well, if you can, but, but some, yeah, you bushwhack them. You know, and, and everybody said, well, you know, Sneaking up on a turkey and shooting them out of a tree doesn't sound like much sport. I'm like, this is not like shooting an eastern turkey in a pine plantation after a rain. It, oh, it, people it is, say that kind of stuff. I it have is, no patience. I know, but it, it is. You know, I can remember uh, crashing through the, you know, my, my guide was as quiet as a, as a shadow, and I'm walking behind him, sound like a kid rock concert coming through the woods, <laughs> and I woke the turkey up. And he motioned to me to be still and, and cover up my watch so the reflection wouldn't show in the jungle. And then he vanished, and it was pitch black dark, and I can't see him anywhere. But I can hear, and it's so silent, I can hear sweat coming off my nose and hitting the floor. Huh. And he was gone. And, he, and when he came back 15, 20, 30 minutes later and appeared, I almost screamed. It scared me to death. I hadn't heard him. Where'd he go? He had gone up ahead of the trail to get all the twigs and everything out of my way <laughs> so <laughs> I could like, walk up to that turkey. He had to manicure your path? He manicured my path silent as a ghost. <laughs> But we also hunt around fruit trees. There's like, they got these big sapote trees, and, and uh, the natives know where they are. It's, it's, think of it like a fig. Yeah. And they grow occasionally out in the jungle, and everything in the jungle eats it. So the, the male birds will spin around. They know where they are, too. They're looking for the hens, and they're spinning around looking. So sometimes you're in an in a elevated blind, like a, a very comfortable little hammock, uh-huh. wait, waiting on those animals to, to come in, or sometimes you're like hunting near water them. to ambush them. Yep. And and they will sometimes, uh, some of these outfitters down here will turn on male calls that make, that emulate the oscillated. Electronic calls. That provokes them to start calling and become rivalry. Remember, they're like game, they're like game roosters. I don't know that the oscillated turkeys ever assemble in male and female, like the, like the Easterns or the Miriams. I don't think they do that. I think they stay off to themselves and fight. And, and so sometimes they'll they'll get those uh, calls going to initiate them. They use an electronic closer. an electronic call or a mouth call. Electronic call. And I'll tell you one of my favorite my favorite hunts ever in the world was hunting an isolated turkey and back on the road on the jungle. So you're road, saying you, you've only killed ten turkeys, but one of them was one of these. Two of them were isolated. Man, you got it all backward. I just I take it as it comes. <laughs> but you know, really, I think I, I just take it as it comes. You know, but I do like, I, I like the hunt. That, yeah, that's yeah. what appealed to me. You know, I, we, oh, well, you know, you're fixing to tell me another isolated story. Oh my gosh. It it was, uh, so the guy t- turns on the electronic call, the outfitter turns on the electronic call and I'm following my guide through the wood for about a mile and we're stopping. And, and I he's can, I, walking with the caller. 
No, no, no. The electronic call sitting on the road. Set it up. And the cantor, they call it the singing bird, starts to sing back. The cantor is the turkey. Is the turkey. They call it a wahalote or no? Not a die, just no cantor. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, but so we get back here in the woods. You know what a cantor is in um No. At a synagogue? No. Hansi? They You're like, not Jewish, are you, Hansi? No, but don't they like lead the oh, yeah. lead the prayer, basically? Yeah, like a cantor comes up yeah. and opens the Torah. You know what that is, Hansi? I do. You know, you know <laughs> do the, you want me to explain? You know what the Pentateuch is? I I Wait a second. Is just that, say no because he's just trying to prove that he knows more Is the Pentateuch about... the thing that hangs on the door that you no, like it's spin? No, the five, or... first five books of the Bible. Oh, my gosh. That's good to you know. Okay, yeah, I think uh, a cantor comes up and opens the Torah, the scrolls, and starts singing out of there. Yeah. So it's one that sings. Uh, oh, why am I asking Hansi? Corinne, this is right in your wheelhouse. No, you, <laughs> yeah. you're kind of too much of a heathen. Go on. <laughs> the canter bird. So once, once they use that electronic call to get that bird initiated, I'm a mile in the woods. And my guides, I can see him. I can see, by look, I can't hear the whistle, but I can see him whistling. And now he's making the hand call. Oh, with his really? Mouth. And the bird starts getting closer. And we're walking kind of towards the bird. And about that time he lets out that sound they make, that gobble, we sit. And we're, we're like in a little hole in the jungle where a tree had fell and it's sunshine and heavy grass. I'm sitting down facing this way, and the turkey is so loud now, it's making my eardrums rattle inside. They're vibrating, so I know he's close. The guy had laid down on the belly. All he's got is a camo shirt. He pulls it up over his head. And about, about the time my eardrums are rattling, he starts pressing me on my back. And this bird's just hammering? Or? This hammering, and he's right here. Like, do me the noise. Oh, you can't imitate that. Well, just come, come on. I mean, it's just, I, I can't imitate. Do it again. That's pretty good. <laughs> I'm not going. Okay, ask me to do a noise. <laughs> ask me to do an impossible noise. I know, but I can't do. I can't do an oscillated turkey. It's it's a rattle. It's a, it's a, it's a it's a. Well, here I'll do a turkey's gobble. Rattle. It's nothing like that. It's not like that. It's more prehistoric. So this bird is hammering right here, and he's pressing on my back. Say he's more like a. More like a machine gun, a mechanical machine gun. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But he's right here. And, and this guy's pressing on my back. I'm saying, does he want me to shoot? I mean, it, it, maybe some, if that turkey had kept coming, he'd have been right on the end of my gun barrel. And about this time, this, this jaguar roars. No. Oh, yeah. From way off. And the bird shuts up. And I can hear him, deaf as I am, walking away. Well, I don't speak. I don't speak Spanish. He doesn't speak English. We get back to the road and I ask the interpreter, "What was what was he saying? What was he doing?" He said, "From where you were, the turkey was eight feet away. He 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 was down under the cover and could see his spurs and see oh. his feet. And he was right there. And he was scared that you weren't going to be ready when he stepped out. He'd been right into your gun barrel. We didn't get him that day. We came back the next morning and ambushed him. Oh man! But, th- but that was the hunt. Like, that was the memory. Is... Yeah, wow. you'll love it." That makes me want to go real bad. Yeah. When we were kids, we played World War II. I feel like we'd go like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh. it, right? You see why I can't imitate that? <laughs> hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, 
even tech, like computers and gaming systems. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. Here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store. Or visit errands.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Decked Drawer Systems. Their products let you store and transport anything and everything to and from whatever you are doing. I have been using a deck system for years. I would not want to drive a truck without a deck system in it. You can clear the clutter right out of your cab. No more tripping over duct tape, jumper cables, toe straps. You put all that stuff in the deck system. Get rid of the random tubs and bins. You get out more, get more done, spend your time doing what you want to do when you have all your stuff organized and ready to go where it should be, all tucked away in your deck system. I've always loved decked as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat eater. Get yourself free shipping. On average, it takes about 30 days for a person to break their New Year's resolution. So if saving money was on your 2024 list, odds are you're already done trying. Well, luckily, I have a 100% guaranteed way to save you money this year. Just switch it over to Mint Mobile. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Choose from three, six, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or a family. And at Mint, families start at two lines. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash eater. That's mintmobile.com slash eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash eater. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. So one of the benefits of having an extremely um, talented engineer named Phil is that Phil will now insert the, the noise. Yeah. So you can't hear it, and you can't do it, and I don't know what it is, but Phil is playing it right now. Perfect. Uh, seduction, lodge seduction. Don't let I, it happen. No, I, I think I think on that particular isolated turkey hunt, you really want the tent camp experience. And 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 the guys with the lodges, no offense, but they'll say, "Oh, we're only ten miles from the jungle." 
That's a long ways. And just because it's 10 miles to the jungle doesn't mean it's not another 10 miles in the jungle. Go into the jungle, stay in the tent, and, and have the experience. It's, it's, just, it's just to be immersed in that culture, in that, that environment. It's just monkeys swinging through the trees in the afternoons and the, maybe the jaguars roaring and walking along. And, and you see all kinds of Mayan antiquity everywhere. It's just, it's just amazing. Oh, I'm in. I am in. 100%. Yeah. Uh, Corinne was saying you had a near-death experience as a kid. We did. I, 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 was, uh, I was involved in a home explosion, pretty obvious, when I was uh, almost 16 years old. Had a bird dog that had torn up the back doors and uh, was painting it, cleaning the paintbrush with some gasoline. Hold on, hold it back up. I understand. What did uh, the bird dog do? Scratch, torn the doors up, scratched the paint oh, off. Oh, and you, were, you got assigned to, your, your folks was, wanted you to repair hey, it. Yeah, it was my dog. And uh, so, so we went and, went and painted, the, painted the doors. And uh, gasoline with gasoline and, and the pilot as light. You're using it as a thinner, of course. And and uh, and and a pilot light ignited the gas fumes. And what's so crazy is I can remember it. Well, I can remember the door opening in the garage and my neighbor coming in and my mama shrieking. And I remember pacing up and down around the driveway waiting on the ambulance to get there. And I can remember the ambulance ride to the hospital and telling my mom to call my. I bust tables at Shoney's at the time. I remember, hey, better call Andy and tell him I'm not going to make it today. And, um, but you were a mess, uh, apparently. And, uh, but you don't see that. I just remember that. And, and I can remember going, get, being rolled into the ER. And, uh, I can, can, we, can we go back to the explosion for a second? Sure. It was like, it was like, it was like, think of it like, the, the uh, feel, like so the, the room is full. It's not that it caught the can on fire. Nope. It the fumes ignited. It's so like, everything like in the a, air like a, around you. It was, it was like, like the combustion in a carburetor. Boom. That's what it was. My neighbor across the street thought me and my brother were in a fight. He heard me hollering, thought we were in a fight. He couldn't heard my mother hollering, so he come over to break us up. It wasn't that. He did you guys fight a lot? Up. Well, we're brothers. Of course we did. Uh-huh. You know, don't all brothers? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but anyway, I can remember. I can remember uh, rolling into the ER, cutting the clothes. I can remember him cutting my clothes off, and I remember this nurse putting a piece of ice in my mouth, and how good that tasted. That's really the last coherent thought I had for six months. Six months. Yeah, I spent then six, you just, six you months. Were, then you were out of it. Yeah, I, I was out of it. But, you know, um, it's not like uh, some television show where they load you up with painkillers. And, no, they, you just tough it out, man. They, uh, they, they, those painkillers and all that stuff slows down growth. And where you aren't burned, they need the skin to cover up where you were. Uh, they flew me down to Galveston, Texas, to a Shriners unit. Um Happened on May 17th, and I came home, started back to school right after Thanksgiving. A uh, complete and utter mess. You know, I think um, to cope with that, humanity has places down beneath consciousness. And I really kind of crawled into a hole, I think. It's like I kind of sort of knew what was going on, but I got into a place to where I needed to be for a long time. And it's like I know I, I know from uh, having revisited that burn unit that the lights were always on. It was 24-hour surveillance in that little unit with whatever it was, a dozen rooms. But I just remember it being dark. You know, it's like I was in a dark room the whole time. And um, maybe a year after it happened, you know, you're sorting through those memories of what was real or what was a dream or what was going on. And I, and I told my mother, I said, I just remember, I just remember like, like this, this hospital room and all these, bright lights before it got dark and 
people buzzing in and lights going off and 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 I could and I, and, they, and I could see my body bucking when they put them paddles on it. Oh, you were that gone. And I looked up at her and she was crying. She says, "How do you remember that? That's the night they brought you in. You died." Huh? And they uh they had told they had told my parents I spent 6 weeks in ICU. Been a few weeks in ICU in Jackson, Mississippi, while they were looking for somewhere to send this guy. And uh, it was bad. It was 70-something percent and uh, had a, died the night I was brought in, 8% chance of survival. And they told my parents he'll lose his right arm and both his legs if he makes it. What was, when that happens, like, let's say you had died. What was the, what would the autopsy say? Had you, like, um, taken a, uh, was it just reaction to having no, so it, much it, your body it was, burned it was burned it was just burn trauma so it wasn't organ damage it was no like, it was just it was just burn, burn trauma. trauma i mean you've got 70 80 percent of your body i guess is an open wound and it's just just trauma it's just shock trauma and i'm sure i'm sure it affects other other vital organs i think if you have heart disease it affects other other organs and uh i'm really still no medical expert in it all i try to do is get back on my life when it was over you know how old are you now 54 Seventy percent of your body. Yeah. Have you had a lot of plastic surgery? No, 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 no. Re- I don't know. Nothing. Uh, none of them make you look better. I, I wasn't a good looking guy to start with. Just, uh, I think she. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of seventy uh, some odd skin grafts. Oh God. Then, and a few, a uh, few functional, few functional surgeries uh, afterwards, just to get me back on my feet where I could had some mobility, and that was it. And that is. Once I had the mobility, I was off and going like the Energizer Bunny. Hmm. You married? Oh, I am. I've been married for uh, 26 years this August. Three kids. Started, date, started dating her in 1990, the year we had a little love letter contest going when I was biking across the country. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Did that change your um, career path, I'm guessing? The girl or the... No, not the injuries. Yeah, I know what that does. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think I think it did. No, being I, no. being like close to death. Yes, I think I it bet, did. I, I don't. I never had anything like that happen to me. I've never even been like super sick. Uh-huh. But um, I know that when I meet people that had that, they have a better. Well, I guess it can lead both ways. I have been fortunate to meet a handful of individuals who've had very serious, like near death experiences. Mm-hmm. And then they wind up living life um, to the absolute fullest, d- very deliberately. Exactly, and take shit for granted. Very good, very good word choice. And you know, I, I think like like a lot of fifteen and sixteen year old kids, I had no purpose, no sense of purpose in life. I mean, who fifteen year old kid? You got one thing on your mind, and uh, but yeah, you know, it, it's a- after it happened, and, and that's what. I, Man, you know, lots going on with a young man at 16 years old in terms of personal identity and where you're going and what you're thinking. And uh, I think it did change me. And I know, I know having gone through that and having come from that place that I wanted, um, I wanted to really live. I wanted, I, that, and that, I wanted to, I wanted to get the most of the second chance. And I knew that at that tender age, that, that this is a second chance. This is barred time. And there's a lot I wouldn't have done had I died then. That I'm now since done. That I, you know, see, see, follow what I'm saying. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and I kid around. You say, "What do you like to do?" Introduce stuff. I say, "I kill ducks." And I do like to shoot ducks, but but I, but what I think of is, you know, I don't. I've shot the species. I don't collect them. I collect experiences. That's what I like. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I think I think it really I think it's probably the most life defining moment of my life. I think it's very definitive in having gone through some trauma like that. Were you already a duck hunter when that happened? Uh no. My, I grew I grew up with duck hunters. My grandfather, who was my mentor, uh, who was a duck hunter, and um, that was at that age. That generation didn't take children hunting. They didn't take five and six years old. Oh, maybe carry the duck blind on a warm day, and but you weren't hunting. You know, it was a, it, his duck camp was a man place. And when you get up to be uh, 13, 14, 15 years old, then you start duck hunting. And right about the time I was getting into that phase, he retired. His health failed him. You know, and uh, so I missed that part. I heard stories. I saw the ducks clean. We ate duck. We did all that kind of stuff. But I, but I just missed it. And, you know, uh, get it through, through uh, at, right after high school, he died my senior year. Right after high school, I did duck hunt, but it was just jump shooting wood ducks or scouting for deer. And, boy, you flush up some mallards, you know they're going to come back. So you run, go get your shotgun and wait on them. Went down to South Texas. I wanted to be a deer biologist. I wanted to be, you know. Jim Crowell or Harry Jacobson. Uh, that's why I went to Mississippi State University. And we show up on this 107,000 acre ranch, free range, uh, growing trophy white-tailed deer. And, and a funny thing happened, you know, that became a job description, shooting an antlerless deer and all this kind of stuff. But every time the wind blew out of the north from Thanksgiving on, those stock tanks would fill up with ducks. And that began to, that began to kind of reconnect me to my roots. And then uh, when I was in college, I got invited to go to Arkansas and duck hunt some flooded timber public. The limit was two mallards, and that, that was all she wrote. I never looked back. It just, it just something happened, and I loved it. I remember those days of being very young when they had the point system, mm-hmm. and uh, you weren't allowed like five, seven mallards like you are now, What's the man? point no. system? Yeah, can you remember it well enough to explain the point system? Because it, it came it, down to them like game wardens carrying thermometers around and putting thermometers oh, in ducks anuses and whatnot i don't know i don't know about that they may have because no, uh, you could tell this there was a problem you'd get into about the sequence and what you shot in which well, you course. shot your ducks how is how you count you had you, you got a hundred points and it was a value system based on the the value of those ducks to the federal government or whoever's keeping count you go shoot till for 10 points pintails for 10 points mallards for drakes for 25 points a hen was a hundred so, you know, you accidentally shot a hundred hundred off the bat, you were done. Uh, that's gotta be one so, so maybe so maybe I'll maybe I'll chance that he didn't see me and I didn't do this, but I heard about it. And, and you know, maybe maybe I would shoot her first. That's my hundred points. And you're like, Well, I don't want to go ahead and shoot. Yeah. Because you couldn't go You could go over as long as you didn't start over. You couldn't yeah, you could I could yeah. shoot I could shoot three twenty five point birds and then shoot a hundred point bird and I was done. But if I start off with a hundred point bird, I'm done. That's what it wasn't. So they would want to know this is just the first couple years I hunted ducks. Right. They would want to know, or at least probably, probably wasn't even, I don't even know what year they did this. We could find out really easily when they switched from the point system. But it might have been that I was so little that I wasn't even hunting, but I was just with my old man. Right. But remember, there was always this fear of like, you couldn't, don't risk. If you got a hen, mallard, don't risk because they'll put a thermometer in there and tell which of those ducks right. have been dead longer. Right. And that was what kept everyone in check. And when I actually started duck hunting there in Arkansas, it was it was right after this uh, adaptive harvest management had started, and it was a restricted restricted management regime, and the and the limit was two mallards. The limit of two mallards that year, and uh, I couldn't. I say it's early nineties. Didn't matter, boy, girl, or what. Mm-mm. 
when you were doing the Texas work, where that was so, but you worked for the Forest Service, but you also did Texas whitetail work. Yeah, we got all our whack. No, I was in college and I co-opted down in South Texas, about sixty miles from the Mexican border, on a fast ranch. Man, a couple of Texas oil barons owned one hundred seven thousand acres. Is this like down in that? What's that famous county, Yanni? Demet LaSalle, Webb County. No, we're thinking of uh, the one we know, the famous county we know about, Maverick County. Maverick. That I don't know about. That's right. Oh. This was down around, this was Denver, LaSalle, Webb County area, the, the brush country. And uh, just just a couple of old guys had, had some land, and they had hired a biologist who then turned around and hired some of us college kids to co-op. Paid a whopping 500 bucks a month, but it was paradise. It was great. Best 500 bucks a month I ever made. Man, those oil guys own a lot of land and a lot of deer. Own a lot of land. Something about yeah. it. Yeah. Do you blame them? Are they interested in it before they become an oil guy? Is there something about being an oil guy makes you want to buy a ranch? I don't, that I couldn't tell you. I think. Or do you, I, do you oh become an oil guy because you want to buy a ranch? Or does, does you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I get what you're saying. Or does it come with being an oil guy? Egg? I have no idea. Maybe I have buy no a lot idea. of ranches. If I could have every ranch ever bought by an oil guy, I'd have a hell of a property. Oh boy, would you? Yeah. Guys, <laughs> there's some land buying, land buyers. <laughs> Uh, you told me a little bit about this, but I'm still tracking how you got where you are today. That you did some hunting with an outfitter. I hunted with an outfitter. I I I got out of grad school and took made a career in the federal government. That that was it. I was a forestry. You went to graduate school. I did forestry. Okay, Mississippi State University, and uh, got an undergraduate wildlife, which at the time was forestry, because wildlife management is a byproduct of forestry of civil culture. Then, then got a uh, graduate degree in bottomland hardwood civil culture at Mississippi State University. Landed the job doing a lot of restoration work in the Mississippi Delta with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Was there for a period of time, went to USDA. It was in that period of time early on that, hey, all of a sudden I had a job. I wasn't a broke college kid anymore. I could afford to go to Canada. So a couple of buddies and I did. And we got just, pew, it was real bad. And I, I, you know, I can tell you the year was 1998. You went up there to hunt. I went up there to hunt. The year was 1998, and I, I know that because that was the first year the you could shoot 20 snow geese. How old are you? 54. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm an old man. Can't tell. But but anyway, and that even though we had a break break, so we we go we go to Saskatchewan. We back just, up just and to go be, to Alberta. Just, to, just, just to hunt. We booked a hunt because we wanted to go to Canada to hunt. You know, myself and a major professor. Um then we went to Alberta and started hunting with another outfitter. and uh, Just pay, like paying clients. Paying clients, man. Yeah. yeah, just paying clients. We had jobs. And uh, and that turned into something. It's like, it's like I came up there and a few more people came and a few more people came. And I remember the third year I was up there, 25 clients came to that outfitter. Out of your word of mouth. Out of my word of mouth. And and, and, and he out- realized you're like the pied piper of duck hunters. That's what he said. What he, he, just, he just said, hey, come out here and drink a beer with us. And he comes out and... and all the staff is sitting there. He says, you know, Ramsey, all these guys come up there and hunt with us from Mississippi and whoever you talk to. And, man, they know how to hunt. They know how to shoot. They know how to tip the guide. They're, they're a pleasure to be around. My boys are always cutting cards or flipping coins to see who gets to take these guys. And all the guys are nodding their heads. And uh, he says, why don't you be my booking agent? And I'm like, what the, what the heck is that? Mississippians. I, have, I have no idea what that is, but, yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> and, uh, and and so, you know, so how do you – So were you, were you just – you were just socializing the fact that you had good yeah, hunting. Yeah, that's, that's all it was, was just, you know, showing pictures and ha- having a good time and socializing that we were having a good time and people started going. 
Because I was an avid duck hunter by then back home. People knew, man, this guy likes to hunt a lot. And um, and I guess I guess they found some credibility in that and started going. And you were at that time, you weren't getting like a cut of the action. No. No, I just I no. So when he when he first tells you, well go go round up some more guys and bring them up, at that point he's saying that He said, Yeah, let me He's let me, gonna give you a kickback. Well, let me give you a commission. Let me give you a commission for doing this. And that inspired me. Well, how do I meet more people than I just personally know? Come up with a web page. And I was doing a little bit of waterfowl habitat consultation, a little uh, uh, conservation easement work at the time. I was writing baseline reports on as a side gig. And I needed a good idea. I needed some way to reach people. So I came up with this idea, getducks.com. And at the time, it was. That's a good URL, it, 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 there man. There was two clicks. There was two clicks. Click. Go to Alberta. Click. Call Ramsey about <laughs> habitat work. And that was it. Oh, get ducks was like, go get ducks or make ducks. Yeah, that was it. That that was just, it was just, man, it was a long time ago, almost 20 years ago now, Steve. It's, it's uh, we, we've been incorporated since 2003 and it, that's a long time ago. When, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to ask like how much money you made, but like in percentile points back your first deal. Your first 10, deal. Ten percent was the was the was the that's what they did. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. And and, and I'll, I'll tell you, I tell you, uh, I think part of the reason if we if we go go there, uh, that's go not, where that, to what we're talking about. It it just I want to make this point because I I really for some reason I've, I've been a quote booking agent for nearly two decades, but I despise that term. I I and and because there's so many, uh, I've got so many clients right now that had gotten in a bad way with a, quote, booking agent, unquote, but they heard enough about us, they called, and they booked a trip, and we took care of it, and everything was good, and they said, holy cow, man, I, I'd sworn them off till I met y'all. You know, mm-hmm. so I don't know what, what else to call it but a booking agent, but but that's what we are. Yeah, you call it like but, a good standard. booking agent. I hate the standard, and I'll, I'll tell you a very— uh, like, I, I didn't even know enough to know this. I didn't know—that's a shoddy industry. I think it is. I, th- I think, Is it I think shoddy in very, all guiding, like— Fishing, hunting, big game. Is it shoddy because, like, waterfowl is shoddy? I had a guy tell me recently, a very big waterfowler. He uh, That's his life's passion. He even studied ducks. Big waterfowler. He was saying that he feels that his segment of the hunting world is the most corrupt segment of the hunting world. When it comes to just killing and cheating and killing and cheating and wasting, and not using your stuff. He's like, it's just, he, he has a very dim view as a waterfowler, a career waterfowler has a very dim view of waterfowlers, which I which was surprising to me. He's like, the things I see come out of my community are worse than things I see come out of any other community. I hope it's cleaning up. I like to think, I like to think that it's cleaning up because I can remember, you know, Argentina is a very big destination for us. And I can remember. 15 years ago, let's say, one of the primary questions that somebody inquiring about Argentina would ask, and I mean one of the top questions would be, how many ducks do I kill? And all these years later, it's one of the, it's, it's, it, oh, they might ask, but it's not. It's not. It's, I, I've, I've, I think I have seen and perceived, uh, at least with a lot of the people that I deal with, a change in the hunter's heart. I, think, I, I really think it's, it's shifting more from a quantity to a quality. Mm-hmm. I, I, I believe that. I think, I think there's... Um, I think there's probably a lot of issues. Anytime, anytime, and I, I wouldn't say just duck hunting. I think that anytime you take a public resource, be it elk or, or waterfowl, and involve money, there, there's room for corruptness. 
And mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hang that on waterfowl though. I think one of the things that leads to is that it's hard. There's a lot of bad days. Um, and then now and then you get yourself into some situations that are just so good. I've heard it and seen it. It's so good, and you're like a mountain lion that gets into a pasture full of alpacas, man. Like you just can't. You know. Well, it's like a lot they of they can't turn it off. I understand. I, I understand it. But big game hunters, you know, a guy will drive from Mississippi or whatever out to Montana and camp and hunt elk for ten days. If he doesn't get one, that's hunting. But it seems like sometimes guys want to go duck hunting and they just expect an auto limit because they're not hunting in their backyard, and that that's not reality. Mm-hmm. You know, ducks don't just fly on command. There's weather and migrations and skill sets involved. Uh, did you have like a any kind of moral crisis where you said like this guy comes in, you're young and you got a job, or you know you're starting out in a as a federal employee, you, you know you. You're not making a, a presumably you're not making like some obscene salary, and all of a sudden you can uh, get a kickback, get a cut for bringing people in. Did you have to decide like you know what I'm going to do? I'm no. only going to book people for really good trips, or did you make a mistake, or did you oh. just have a moral compass and that's always just served you well? You know, I, I think that um, I think it's, I, I would I'm gonna I'm gonna say a moral compass. I had no compunction about selling hunts or selling consulting services or doing something like that and uh none whatsoever it, it, it's just it's just that you know even today all these years later my my first obligation is not to the outfitter i've got a very good credible working relationship with an outfitter anywhere in this world but he's not my first obligation the client is i yeah i could see that being that's a good way to view it man and i think you don't well, work I, for the outfitter no I, I, yeah. I work for the client and they they're buttering everybody's bread and and you know uh you yeah, work, I like work. that. that I, I, yeah. I can understand that viewpoint. Thank you, and yeah. and it, and it's uh. But at the end of the day, it's that's why we're willing to. And it was very difficult back when it was early, especially back when I was still working for the federal government and doing this thing part time. It was very difficult to spend money out of my pocket and go on these destinations. And not every destination you see is every destination we've been on. We've been on ten to one ratio that just didn't work out. That just this isn't worth. This is not what we're looking for. This is not what we want to be a part of. Uh, it, and it, it, but it took that commitment because I feel like feel like if you're going to trust me to go on a duck hunt that I recommend, that I need to better speak personally to it. And, and, and you know, it's just like a, a retriever, just like a, a blue tick hound. Those, those relationships and that that working relationship builds over time. It's only get you know what I'm saying. It, it, mm-hmm. Okay, so I go and hunt with your camp. Oh yeah, yeah, you're a good hunt. Let me sell that hunt. That's not near what it's like 10 years, 12 years down the road working with that outfitter. You know what this outfitter can do in the good years and the bad years. Because because ducks don't – there's weather, there's different conditions that, that ducks don't fly. You know, and I always say, man, uh, opening day, everybody, every guy in, in the world is, an, is, a, is, a, is a rock star on opening day. It's the tough days. It's those days that, that ducks aren't doing what you want them to do, that clients may be a little disappointed, that, are, that the best of the outfitters dig hard. What I say about a best waterfowl outfitter, and I think the same might be said anywhere in hunting industry, is the good outfitters, when, when you're killing half as much, they're working two or three times as hard, not half as much. They're yeah. working harder. And that you can build those relationships only over time. Tell me a story about an outfitter that you checked out and it didn't work out. Oh, boy, Romania. We went through that. That was a... <laughs> 
That was that was just the first <laughs> one that popped to mind. Yeah, I, like, give me an idea of what like uh the not cussing what like what not cutting the mustard looks like. Well, you know, we went two or three two or three months back and forth and emailed to kept wanting me to come over and hunt. And we finally got it sorted. And, and Steve, I've got a I've like got the a, expectation being clear. The expectation. He's just, like, come check out my lodge and and, and yes, bring me clients. Yes, and, but just getting to the initial visit point was um, I don't know awkward, tenuous. Um, but we were going to Sweden that year. We I was going to swing through Amsterdam and check out Netherlands. Netherlands is a great hunt, and I, I've got a group of clients that just have been on some of these regular hunts, Argentina, Mexico, wherever, and now they want to go do real Ramsey shit, which is to say, I want to go somewhere you had not even been. Let's just figure it out together. And I like that because now it's not just what I see in this outfit, it's what the client sees too. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're up for everything. So we, me and a client show oh, hold, up. Hold, hold, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. Yeah. You, they use you so much and then they get to a point where they're like, I want to go with you to check something out. That's it. Okay. I want to be on the first. The first, And then you make clear with them that like, well, you yeah. know what that means, right? Yeah, like I, I haven't checked it out. But they're real hunters. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Yeah, know? I mean, they're the clients that all guides want to hunt with, you know, because they're there for the adventure and the good time. And that's a, it's a totally different no experience, ducks, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's that kind of client. So we, 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 we're in, we're in Sweden and the next morning we're going to pick up, fly to Romania and, um. I get an email in Romanian that is not from my outfitter. And it's saying something. I have to go Google Translate, which is kind of imperfect. <laughs> and I gather that he's not going to be there, but everything's everything's in place. I go, I don't like this idea. And Scott and I talk. We have a drink. We talk some more. And I say, yeah, let's go check it out. And uh, so we go back and forth. And all I can understand in Google Translate, this is the guy's brother or brother-in-law or somebody. So we, we show up, and we decide we're going to check this guy out. We'll, we'll just see who our ride looks like, and we'll just make a gut instinct call. And, like, if you if I, if I said the word Romanian hitman, what would you think? Because that's exactly who met us. Some guy looks like Yanni. Yeah. A <laughs> <laughs> guy meets us, and uh, we get to talking, and we start indicating to him we're, we're stopping right here. And he hands us a phone. Now, now this guy's speaking a little broken English. It's the guy that wrote me the email. I'm the guy's brother-in-law. And I'm saying, well, where's the outfitter I've been talking to for two months? And he's like, well, he can't make it. Something's up. I said, is he in the hospital? No. Is he in, is he in prison? No, no, no. He's just at the, he's just at the police station. I said, oh. <laughs> so long story short, we make our way to the, to the van. And I realized the minute we get out to the van that this is like a legit, rental transfer van i said okay i still take a picture of the of the of the license plate to send to my wife and say i'm getting in this truck right here if you don't hear from me in 24 hours you know call interpol whatever what we found out he's just a real guy he 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 drives us just down the road introduced his brother and it was just uh that was all an adventure the reason it didn't work out the food was great the host was great the guys were great the duck hunting was just terrible it was just terrible. I mean, we shot thirteen ducks in three days. There was no, there was just nothing to it. It's just, it's just an overshot resource. And and we've been, you know, we've looked around in different places like that. And sometimes you run into places that just there's just too much hunting pressure. And you know, in, in parts of the world like that, there's no. Like bag, they they hunt no ducks hard in Romania. They hunt ducks. They have hard. brown bears there still. That I believe they do. Yeah. But they but they hunt ducks. Their Italian clients hunt ducks hard. There's no bag limit. 
you know, and, and so they, they just, in places, they shoot too many for it to sustain quality. What are the ducks they have there? Mallards, gadwalls, shovelers. Oh. You're raising green wings, you're raising widgeons. You know, a lot of the birds we hunt, uh, one of my favorite places to go right now is a little country called Azerbaijan. Uh-huh. Between the Caspian Sea and Turkey. And how we how we how we found it is there were some species kind of in that Eurasian area over there. I just wanted to encounter. I kept hearing about the Volga River coming through Delta, uh, through the Volga River coming through Russia. And as I began to explore it and talk to some resources over there, it was it was it's a fall hunt October. So even if you go over there, even if you time the ducks coming through right in that part of Russia, you're just dealing with brown ducks. Go shoot a bird of a lifetime, a red-crested poacher. He's brown. Just because I mean, because they haven't gotten their, their right. they haven't got their mature. They, have, they haven't hit that plumage yet. Yeah. And uh, and and it took me a while to, to for it to kind of go through my knife drawer and figure this out. But I finally got to wonder one day, where does the Volga River go? It goes to the Caspian Sea. And so we began we began to research that area right there, and we found uh, trying to catch the dogs the ducks later. Where, in the where year. are they going to overwinter? Instead of going here, let's catch them in the wintering grounds. And and about three or four years ago, we began to put together a little tiny country called Azerbaijan, and it, it was a very amazing hunt. And, and I bring it up because to me, it, it's um, on the one hand you think of okay, I'm gonna fly sixty five hundred miles from home, it's distance. But in some sometimes the thing I love about this job is not just distance; it's time. It's almost like I'm stepping into a time machine mm-hmm. and going back because because these guys are so fundamental duck hunters. You, you they, they still market hunt over there. A lot of my guides are feeding their families or their their their, their communities with the ducks we kill, and they are game on, absolute grade A duck hunters. The the good ones are, and they're hunting the delta of the Volga River. Well, that that would still be in Russia. We're way further south down in Azerbaijan. In fact, I'll tell you, I can put you on a map. We're eight. We're the wetland we've been hunting the past few years is eight miles from Iran. Okay, you know, and and one of the one of the wetlands we scouted this year, standing on this this lake levee, I could look down and see uh, see the border crossing for Iran. And uh, so it, it's Baku. If you look it up, beautiful. Uh, we're hunting about we're hunting four or five hours from there. And what's it look like where you're at? It looks it looks strangely like the Mississippi Delta. You know, I, uh, my family I've got family in Greenwood, Mississippi, which is the uh, long staple cotton capital of the world, self proclaimed. And pulling into that little village, and I can't remember the name of it, but pulling into that little town for the first time, when you come into Greenwood, Mississippi, every entrance, every little four two lane highway coming into the city, there's a big bulletin board with cotton bowls on it, and going into that little town we're hunting. There's a big banner over the over the entrance with two cotton bowls. So oh, it, really? It, 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 it's to be so far for home from home, it feels so much like home in just terms of the habitat. Then everything gets different. Is it but similar the, in latitude? Similar. I, I'm, I, I'm I, so I, close to pulling up me a map of the world. Pull it right up now. and take a look at it, man. Because it, it's it's a. Uh, I think I think it's I think it's going to be a little bit further north of our latitude. I Ever. Azer. A Z E R. Azerbaijan. I'm digging in here, man. Digging in. Well, I had to look it up on the map the first time too. I just want to help. I want to help people out getting where we're at. I'm trying to find. I'm trying to steer people in from Latvia. (laughs) 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 So, if you go to Turkey, if you go up to the confluence 
of Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and Iran, and then shoot a little off over toward the northeast. That's Azerbaijan. On the Caspian Sea. Which is not a saltwater body of water. Believe it or not, the Caspian Sea is the largest freshwater body. When you stand on the banks, it's like looking at the Gulf of Mexico, but it's the largest freshwater body on Earth. And that town, Baikus, it's out on the little peninsula. Yeah, and it, 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 it is such a such an incredible city. It's like you walk around town and you walk by a Ferrari dealership and a Lamborghini dealership. We don't have those in Mississippi. you know. And is it the, remote, though, the parts where you hunt? Yeah, it's just little 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 farming communities we hunt. And the, it's like uh, the basin we've been hunting the past few years, as I understand it and as I perceive it to be looking at it, it's like a 100,000 acre at full uh, capacity agricultural storage reservoir is what it is. It catches a lot of watershed uh, seasonally, and, uh, and then they use it to irrigate fields around. And, uh, and you can just tell by the, by, the, uh, by the habitat, you can tell by the cover type that it is, it's ephemeral at times, at least parts of it are. And, uh, but it's just, it's just amazing. And, and what made me think of talking about that when you start asking about species is, you know, one of the most iconic waterfowl species in America is the mallard duck. But that duck's found everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere that there's ducks. And, that, and, and everywhere that you hunt them, Pakistan, Azerbaijan, sweet, they're a trophy. They're, they're the prize, just like they are here. They're the big duck. Big so, duck tastes good. Lots of them. They do. But what do you think, Steve? What do you think the number one favorite duck in the Northern Hemisphere of all the countries I've been to that have them? What do you think the, the favorite duck on table is? Green-winged teal. Every country I've ever been to that has green-winged teal, that's the one that's they the want. That's the one you want. That's the one they want. And we, we eat a lot of them over there. But what I'm going to say about Azerbaijan, I went there to find red-crested poachers, tufted ducks, common shell ducks, uh, phrygianous poachers, things of that nature that you're just not going to find anywhere else that, that I have found yet. And when you're saying poachers, you mean like the family of the- – Yeah, yeah. That's their common name. Yeah, bluebills, canvasbacks. That's right. Yeah. Their genus would be Athea, a, a but but their poachers is what their name was. And they were just these really cool species. Don't ask me how. Oh, so it's not a – it's not – okay, because I know that word to be basically all your good-tasting divers. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, the diver duck, the poacher family. Yeah. And, uh, but we went over there looking for those specific species, red-crested poacher, with, with just a real unicorn species for me. And uh, but what 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 I loved about it was we shot a lot of Eurasian wisions, we shot a lot of Eurasian green wing teal, we shot a lot of mallards, gadwall shelvers, pintails, and those mallards just like our mallards, just like ours. Wah! Oh, just you call them in. I, I I don't leave home in the northern hemisphere or hardly anywhere without a mallard call. Mallard call, you know, I, I use it down in Argentina to call in rosy bill poachers just by growling into it like a like a. Um, uh, just you growl into it like a, like it would call for scop or redheads or anything else. And it was so crazy because hunting, the first time I hunted in Azerbaijan was just amazing. I didn't know what to expect. Right here in this little blind, it's well built. I'm by myself and my, my, my little Adil, my bird boy, and uh, and he's, he's good eyes. And uh, the first time I saw those red-crested poachers, I didn't see the orange's head. I just, I saw the black bird with the white wing bars that instinctively reminded me of rosy bill poachers down in Argentina, same genus. And I grabbed my call and growled into it, and they heard the call, and they just right into the decoys. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I, to this day, I don't know what the Azerbaijan word is for red-crested poachers because every time he sees one, he just he makes a sound. <laughs> a dealer grabbed, <laughs> grabbed my call and called to him. 
we're in these tiny little P-Row looking. You got enough room to sit, your decoys, your blind bag, your shotgun. He's standing in the back push pole. Through the, the marsh. Boat, the, the, through the marsh. Those boats they use, I think of it like a 12, 14-foot sized P-Row blind bag. Because everything we need is in that, in that little boat. And off we go, and it's silent, and it's stealthy, and you hear the ducks and the bird life around you when you're going. And uh, if, if you push it far enough in the weeds and get it in that cane just right, it makes a great shooting platform. But the, the guides don't speak any English. And I've learned that Google Translate, it's good for yes, no, hungry. It don't work translating for us having a conversation. And this year, one of my one of my clients was saying, man, I'm just really disappointed this guy doesn't speak English, blah, 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 blah. And I go, you're a duck hunter, and he's a duck hunter, and you don't need to. You don't. We don't have a conversation like this, Steve. We can just. I mean, you just. You know what to do as a duck hunter. Yeah, man. You know, my life is a Crayola box of colors and cultures and creeds and races and religions. But in the times I see them, we're all just duck hunters. Yeah, and that that's one of the most beautiful things about what we do. To me, is is just to meet a guy and and form a. a a guy in Azerbaijan, a guy in Argentina, and they're real hunters, and and this relationship forms. And it's it, but no no spoken words, no common words, just hand signs and sick. We know what to do, and that's just a very rewarding aspect of it all. When you, when you're traveling like that, um, how like when you're going into customs and stuff? Oh boy! And they're like, "What are you doing?" Like, I'm here to hunt ducks. No, I mean, I mean, no, I heck no. What are you doing? I'm, I'm a tourist. Yeah. I'm a tourist. I mean, you try. They I know have, you, do they? Do they? Do, have you hunted ducks in countries that have no regulatory system, no hunting licenses? Uh not that I'm aware. Not that I'm aware. Everyone has some form of regulatory but, system. But I, but no, yes, yes, they do. But but I do I do say and um, and, I, and I've talked about this before. You know, America, Canada, uh, well, the North American model, Australia, New Zealand. There, there's a lot of parts of the world that are black and white. Man, we in America are blessed with black and white. The laws, and they're, they're sent out, and they're published, and we all know. We all know. If we can read, we know what the laws are. But you get into other parts of the world, it can be gray. It can be gray. You know, some of the, some of the infights I've been on, you know, I'm, I'm to a point right now, there's places in the world I'd like to go hunting down in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, I know to go to North Korea, I'm probably going to have to know somebody pretty high up the food chain to get into North Korea and feel comfortable about it, but I'd love to go. And now, You think they I, got good duck hunting in North Korea? I bet they do, yeah. Somewhere. I bet I bet there's somewhere they got some good ducks and got some species <laughs> we're not going to find anywhere else, you know. But, but you know, it's gotten to the point is I get invites, I get contacted by people. You know, I've, I've just got, a, you know, two or three fingers worth of questions I've got to ask. Is hunting legal? Is the species legal? Are, is me holding a gun? Believes you can't hold a gun. You can't. You can't hold ammo. There's countries that that's a real big deal, you know. And 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 so I start asking these questions. I've been invited. You know, come to Japan. I got invited to come to Japan. Well, there's, there's no legal hunting. I've been invited to go to Turkey. There, there's big game hunting. There's not bird hunting. I've been invited to go to the Bahamas. The the Cuban whistlers and the white ching pintails are protected. You can't go there. You know, uh, you're talking about the, the grayness of laws. We would go uh, spearfish in the Bahamas. My brother goes there for quite a bit. And uh, you can just use a sling. You can't use like a gun, you know. But he did a lot of work because he never could get the straight answer. So he works and works and works to get like the regs, right? Like what are the rules? There may not be any. Well, there are. 
But when you express them to the people down there, they're like, there's no such thing as that rule. Right. He's like, dude, I'm telling you, man, I'm looking at it right here. Like, here's the rule. Like, no, man, you fish where you want, man. <laughs> just, that, that just creeps they off. they argue with you, but I was like, it's your rule, dude. Like, I'm telling you, you cannot, on these certain islands, you cannot spear a fish within whatever, 200 yards of shore or something like that. And they, like, almost act, like, hostile to the idea. And, like, how big a, how big a spiny lobster are supposed to be. Yeah. No, man. <laughs> you keep what you want, man. Nobody, nobody's probably enforcing it down there. No, they're like, dude, don't even. They're like, they don't even want to go down that path of talking about there being rules about this shit. You know. Do you guys got to borrow a gun everywhere, right? No, I, I, I uh, some places you have to. You know, Peru has some weird issues where you can't bring guns, and we use theirs. Uh, but like uh, Azerbaijan, I'm, am I saying that right? Yeah, no, no. It's as easy bringing a gun into Azerbaijan as it is Canada. Really? Yeah. I, I, it, it, was, it was as easy bringing firearms into Pakistan as it was in your own ammo, your own gun into Pakistan. Ah, uh, I cannot remember if we got the permit for ammo. Where you run into a problem bringing your own ammo is weight restrictions and airline rules. Mm. If you can get a permit for the firearm, you can get a permit for the ammo. But where you run into problems is airlines allow eleven pounds. Right. And then they've got restrictions on just how much your gross poundage can be bringing bringing bags anyway. So mm-hmm. that 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 gets a little iffy. But bringing guns was you know the craziest thing about the, going. The part in, I just want to clarify, like the the part that I'd wonder about with guns is like that that, that some countries I, I could just picture countries having not enough demand from international travelers trying to bring in firearms that they ever bothered to set up a system by which it's done, like doing in Mexico. We do it every year, but it's a nightmare. I mean, they put together a system, but it's a very, very clumsy system that takes. How long do you have to start ahead of time, Yanni? Uh, well, yeah, we just turned in our information for next January's hunt, and it's it's uh, you know, and hope did, it doesn't land it, on a bureaucrat desk and get. We stuck. did it in June. Yeah. yeah. So in June, laying the groundwork to bring a gun into Mexico in January. I don't know how our clients do it in parts of Mexico where we fly into Hermosillo, but if, if you can give me that information um, within two weeks, three weeks, our outfitter will get the permits for you. Mm. The guy we the guy we go with, like he runs a extremely tight ship. Mm-hmm. He's very organized and doesn't like surprises. Mm. No, no surprises. So I don't, be... Nobody likes surprises. When you're traveling, hunting, nobody likes surprises. You know, speaking of, uh, I had a client one time that was one of those clients that wanted to go do real, real stuff. So we were going to Mongolia. And uh, as I was talking to him, I said, well, you might just want to meet me over there because I think I'm going to stop in China. And get, they got a 72-hour visa. I don't need to get a visa permit through the consulate. And um, I'm going to stop there and go see the wall of China, which was built to keep the Mongols out of China. Hey, well, I want to go do that too. And we're both fine with firearms. So we were talking to uh, the guy over there that arranged this. We'd gone back and forth for months, like you say, to get this farm and all this kind of paperwork done. And um, I call him as I'm going to the airport. As I'm fixing to leave to go to the airport. I don't have my firearm permit for China. It's just it's just a little temporary pass-through permit. And I call him up and say, I need this permit, this paperwork, just to have it. He goes, no, 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 you don't need it. Mary Wayne's going to meet you with it. I said, yeah, yeah, I get, I get that. She's going to be our tour guide. And she's going to have my paperwork. But I... I've been I've been through this this show before. I'd, I'd feel comfortable just having it on my person. And we went back and forth, and finally I said, you know, I'm not boarding the flight without my permit. 
ding, 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 ding. It comes over the fax machine. And as we're coming in through, if we're coming in through the uh, temporary visa line, it took forever, three hours. And the lady knew to ask us, did we have any paperwork? And I'm, and I'm showing every piece of paperwork I've got to include my firearm permit. She goes, you're bringing guns? Yes, ma'am. That was it. She sent us on through. And we get, and there's our guns, and there's our luggage, and there's everything else. And I read my text, and it says you're supposed to meet Mary Wang in baggage. So we just start proceeding towards the exit, and we've got all our luggage. And, I, and I'm sitting there just looking at the, the guard or whoever he is, the guy at customs, looking at the computer monitor of everything coming through x-ray. He may have been slumped in his chair a little bit, and the minute he saw guns, boy, he did he get straight. And he started talking loud, and everybody started talking loud, and I just got off, you know, we've been traveling for 30 hours, and I'm just kind of watching the situation unfold. And somebody comes out of the back, followed by a crowd of people coming out of the back, all talking louder than that, coming my way and looking at the picture on the screen. And I tell the guy with me, I said, I don't know how this is going to go. So they, 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 they very politely heard us up, and they're all talking, man, and they carry us back to this little tiny room, smaller than this studio, smaller than this little room here, and it's got two, like, school desks with a steel bar where they could put a steel bar across your lap and lock you in. I'm like, boy, don't sit down. You know, every – and, and the on, room – they, they got a what? They've got this little chair. Like a little jail chair. Like a little jail chair. Well, they didn't ask us to sit, but the room is getting more and more and more and more people, and they're all trying to – and they're shouting – and, I'm and you sit in the chair. Oh, I'm not sitting no, in the I'm chair. I'm saying, but just I'm just trying to understand. The I'm chair. doing anything but sitting in that one chair. One sits thing. in the chair if one were to. That and they swing a bar over and they throw a lock and on lock it, and you're just stuck in your chair. They lock it, and, and, Dude, and, and things are getting insane. And I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I'm kind of th- I'm I'm on the verge of cracking a sweat. Like this 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 shit's going downhill quick because these people are, I mean, going at it. And I'm I'm trying. What to, kind of gun you got with you? Uh, Benelli. Uh-huh. Got, got my shotgun. Like got my ammo. Loader. We've got a rifle, uh, just a little rimfire rifle, and I'm trying to get over here to get my hands on my permit. It's, I can see it. They they got the gun case open, and boy, they getting agitated. And I'm trying to get my permit. And I mean, it's like they're breaking into kung fu stances and everything. Cause they, you know, here's a guy with a, here's a guy in our country with a firearm, trying to get at his stuff. And finally, I just make a dash. I grab my paperwork and I furl it open. And I give it to the guy that's yelling the loudest, and and. And he says something loud, and it's just hush falls over the room. And somebody comes up, and what do you know they speak? And he said, go, do you have a translator? I go, yes, sir. He said, call her on the phone. So I called Mary Wang, and she comes back there, and the minute she walks in, it all starts again. And then everything gets calm, and, and she says, everything's fine. The lady that lets you in through the 72-hour, she was supposed to notify the police and notify TSA, and she did not. I said, so what now? He said, he said, oh, she's either going to jail or she's fired. I said, no, I mean, what about us? And, and, and he said, oh, we're going to be here. We're going to be here a while, so settle in. You know, we were there for four hours. We, we ended up spending the time we landed in Beijing with those firearms over that, over that one misunderstanding until the time we exited to go to, go to the hotel was nine or ten hours. And I asked the client, how you like this? Uh, <laughs> how, you, how you like this part of the job? So then you roll out into the streets of Beijing. And you got a semi-auto shotgun with Oh, you. heck no. You leave them at the airport. Oh, okay. you, we, we gave them, we put those in police custody. They locked them up under lock and key gotcha. and we signed for them. Now we're in the streets of Beijing. And, you know, I was told you before going to China that I love Chinese food. I would have said they know it. egg foo young and uh, spring rolls. Man, I've been to China. I don't like, I like, I like Peking duck. You like American Chinese? Nah, I must. I, I do not like the real thing I found out. Because of what? I don't know. I, you know, we go to some restaurant and Mary just 
clambers on and on and on and on about the, about the pork something at this particular restaurant. So we all open it and say both of us and her order this, this dish. And I take a bite and it tasted kind of like, tasted kind of like that old brown stink bait smelled. I said, I like all fermented stuff. Something. And I, 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 I drank a little Coca-Cola and tried again. I'm like, boy, I don't like this. I found out. And everything I tried over there was just, nah. but the Peking duck, I lived on Peking duck. Yeah. We found a restaurant with Peking duck and we ate a duck every night. Because <laughs> you like ducks? I do like duck. And if, and if wild duck tasted as good probably or had as much fat content as Peking duck, they, they'd likely be extinct. You know you're saying that everywhere you go, you got like some of the same ducks keep popping up, like different versions of the yeah. same ducks. Do ducks act like ducks? I mean, it's like, yeah, people that hunt ducks all the world over, they, they do decoy sped, decoy spread, blind calls. Do you ever go somewhere and they just hunt ducks where they have no, they have a completely different way they hunt ducks, and no. you have to be like, you know what works good, you know, is to put out decoys and build a blind. No, it 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 it's kind of the way the game's played is with decoys. So people figure that out the world over. That's that's the way they figure out the world over. But, I, but I'm a, I'm gonna tell you as, a, as somebody that's traveled and seen and hunted around the world. On on the one hand, I believe that American hunters are the most passionate, the most dedicated. We have elevated every aspect of duck hunting to art form. The camo, the guns, the ammo. I mean everything. Everything is state of the line technological art. And you really don't need that to shoot a duck. You really don't need some of that to shoot a duck. And I, I go back to Azerbaijan, the fundamentals where they're hunting not with us, but for themselves to feed their family. They're literally hunting over pop bottles, over soda bottles. Paint it up. Black paint. Or I found I found a spread this year that was nothing but old Clorox bottle, different bottles with wool socks over them. Huh. And just put out, and, and they, they put them out in the right place, in the right formation, and hunt them at the right times, and they kill ducks to feed their families. And, and they're, 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 they're just very, very traditional hunters. It's, it's like hunting way back in time. And, and that, I really, uh, and it's like, um, oh, it's, you know, I've got a 22-year-old son, my oldest, 20-year-old son, my youngest, but they, um, they're at a totally different stage of the game. And I can remember, you know, they're they're really, really at a dip, a different motivation at that age than I am at an older age now. And uh, to me, a lot of clients or a lot of duck hunters, the merit or the the, the breakover point or whatever, the, the the metric of a good hunt is a lot of trigger pulls. And to me, the more I get into it, it's like the fewer trigger pulls. If the limit is seven ducks out here in Montana closer I can get to shooting seven times and killing those seven greenheads, the better. That, that's how it is to me. You know, so I'm saying, and, and which, which brings up a good point that duck hunting is so subjective. It's a very subjective experience. The four of us go jumping a duck blind and we all want maybe something a little bit different out of it. Do you, uh, do you find that like motivations to hunt are similar everywhere you go? The, the motive- like, like meaning... I was struck a couple of times when I've been around, you know, you know, hunting with people from very different cultures and faraway places where there's, there's a palpable excitement. Yeah. Fishing, whatever. Like people get excited. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. when it's good, it's good. People like it. And there's like an enthusiasm. Someone catches a big one. That's enthusiasm. Like, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you see that? All Do you always see that? Like, here comes a flight of ducks. And people are like, yeah. like there's a, an, an electric feeling oh, when yeah. here comes a big yeah, flight yeah, of ducks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when you're hunting with a crowd of folks. It's it just, you feel it. You know how everybody's sitting here, we're all talking and socializing. And the one time you really need to be still in a duck blind is when there's ducks flying. And we're sitting here talking and having this conversation. Like, there's ducks. And everybody starts break dancing, looking for the guns and getting ready. Yeah, it's excitement. And that, it's just, it's an energy. And I love it. it it's just, there's an energy to that right there. Everybody's proud. I see them, I think with older duck hunters, more, way more experienced duck hunters and stuff like that, it settles into a quiet proud. Mm-hmm. If I can say that. You know, uh, over in Azerbaijan this year, and this, this, is, this is the kind of hunt I like, just personally speaking. Is when when the ducks are difficult. There aren't aren't the gangbusters full of ducks that you're expecting, and you're in a blind by yourself. And this year in Azerbaijan, um, maybe we were shooting a dozen, fifteen birds apiece, but it took utter focus. It, it took absolutely keeping your head in the game the entire time. And ideal, he went back fifty or sixty yards from where I was hitting in this little blind by myself, and he would just he would whistle loud. I'm looking. I'm looking downwind, and I'm as focused as I can humanly be. But, and, and when three ducks come in, it's not just okay. There's three ducks. Let me shoot one or two. How do you, how do you make the play to kill them all? Mm-hmm. You're focused. I mean, the, the, the numbers are tumbling the whole time. The, these till at first pass. No, no, no. Second pass. Now they're coming in. Now I'm going to run the table on them. And that, but it's just that that focus. You know what I'm saying? He's playing a real what I call a real clean game. Call the ducks. Get them in close. Make ethical shots knock them down, and, and just really go all in. It's like, Steve, uh, back when I was an archer, or let's say fly fishing, because I was watching some guys on the river fly fish the other day. You know, and, and what, what I think about it is how fly fishing is really not about getting grease hot and eating. It, it, it's an art. It's a, it's a ritual. It's a, it's a process. Am I right? I mean, yeah, those yeah. guys are really getting into it. Why else would you go out there and whip the water forever? You're not going to eat a big dinner. But but seriously, it, it's it's something about that that hypnotic thing and that that art form and getting better and laying that laying that fly better. And when when I did bow hunt way back in college in the days with a well no compound bow, it it was it was never about uh, whacking a stack as many as I could. I mean, it's like every time I drew back the, the the dozen deer I shot in my life, every time I drew back, that string creased a smile because I owned that deer. I'd played that game, and he was right here, and it was just a matter of letting the air go and watching it. Yeah. And, and duck hunting's like that, too. You know, I, I know to a lot of people, duck hunting, just a bunch of buddies out there just letting loose as much ammo as possible. But I think there's a ritual to it, you know, from, from the decoys and the placement and getting the birds in and calling to them and speaking their language and having that negotiation to coax them into that range that you own them. And that, there's something pure about that to me. There's a big, big portion of my enjoyment from duck hunting that comes from, and I'm not going to put some arbitrary percentage on it, but um, anticipation exactly. is, is just, I mean, everything from come June, like washing off my decoys from last year and like scrubbing them down and making them look nice, whether that, you know, not shiny, but nice, you know what I mean? Yeah. To being in that holding pattern and waiting, is it, is it the second pass or the third pass? Is it the first, am I, am I screwing up by not going on the first pass? You know, I that's know. the... That's that those those split second moments of joy are instrumental in my yeah. satisfaction with the sport. That's that's what keep that's what keeps that energy and that enthusiasm and that vibration coming on. You're watching that bird and I mean like down the deep south where we hunt a lot of gadwalls. 
Gadwalls kind of work in in reverse order. Their corkscrew is getting further away. You better get them on the first pass if you can, because the second, third, and fourth pass are usually going to be further away. They've talked themselves. They've talked themselves out of coming in, you know. But but sometimes they do, and you, you and you're, you're you're trying to find which duck do I watch, which duck is bringing the flock in, and focus on them and just. But that's what keeps it great. So what if you don't kill every duck? That's okay. Do you ever, uh, uh, presumably you get a lot of clients who were wanting to tick off lists? Yeah. What's your, what's your relationship to that motivation? I mean, you gotta, you know, you're in business, you gotta take the money, but do you ever feel like it's, uh, like the motivations aren't quite, quite what you wish they were? No. Someone's just ticking off numbers? No, you know, in this day and age in hunting. Cause this is coming from a guy who was just saying, I want to get a. Oscillated. Oscillated so I can become a. No, you know world. Why why somebody hunts, and for that matter, how somebody hunts. You know, the uh we kicked off the episode talking about hunting with hounds. There's people that are opposed to it. There are peers that don't think we should hunt with hounds. I disagree. I think we should hunt. And so why why somebody hunts or how somebody hunts or what motivates somebody into different parts of the world is really kind of their business. As long as it's legal and ethical, let's go for it. But you know, that that whole species thing, just like on the one hand, I did kind of, I did kind of find myself wanting to shoot a, a different duck than I shot, hunt a different bird. Because you were asking about duck hunting and duck hunting styles, you know, all of hunting, all the fundamentals of duck hunting is predicated kind of on hunting mallards, but not all ducks are mallards. Some mm. they, they don't play by the mallard rule book. And then you have to figure it out. You have to adapt from your rule and figure out something a little bit different. Hunting divers is different than hunting birds that come in high, which is different than hunting geese, which is different than hunting some other species. Okay. And and so you, but it's still, it's still the fundamental game. But every species you start start having their their different little rules. There's a lot of guys that want to collect uh, as many duck species as they can. And uh, I see it a lot in young guys now. You know, because there there's people out there that say they're chasing the uh, the North American slam. I don't believe it's 41. I believe it's closer to 60. Probably around mid 50s, high 50s than 41. But whatever you're chasing, chase it. Go. Dude, for I it. need to add up where I'm at now. Yeah, go for it. I, I mean, this one. the chase never ends. But but seriously, uh, what we found out is is really and truly, as we began to meet that kind of hunter that wanted to chase off the beaten path into different species, that, that really kind of drove us. It wasn't that kind of like the cart before the horse. Who, who's driving who here? The client's coming in and having those conversations. Mm-hmm. What do you know about shooting bar-headed geese? Well, well I need to find a bar-headed goose. You know, which led us to Mongolia. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I think that, um, I think most collectors that I know, I think at some point in their line, they're, 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 they're going to they're realize they're really not collecting a bird or a trophy or an animal. They're collecting the experiences. Yeah, and and those, yeah. those, that's just placeholders for that experience. I agree with that. Definitely. What, uh, so I, I can't remember, what was it 188 countries or something on the planet? I don't know. Sub two hundred countries. How many countries have you hunted ducks in? More than a dozen. Oh, oh more than a dozen. I'd say twenty five or thirty. Twenty five or thirty, maybe more, maybe thirty five. What? Uh, who's got it right and wrong? Like, like who's paying attention to ducks in a way that they're playing the long game? So they got ducks in a hundred years. America. Really? I, I think I think so. I, you know, because because nowhere else on earth that I'm aware, uh, Australia's trying. Australia's doing a great job. Um, but but nowhere else on world in the world do we have um, 
crunch the numbers like they do here. Do the surveys, do the breeding counts, do the pond counts. I mean, America's trying. And maybe, maybe it could be said that hardly anywhere else in the world do we have the pressure, the hunting pressure for ducks. And, and it's not it's not maybe just the total number of people hunting. But, you know, I think of my granddad who got me into this thing, maybe hunted a dozen days a year. Maybe. Man, how many people's hunting 12 days a year now? A lot, I mean, a lot of guys are hunting way more than that. Hunting, going to Canada, going to Kansas, going to Mississippi, going to Alabama, go, going wherever, you know, chasing these ducks. They, there's this passion. There's this obsession. And, and, and we're not only we're not only hunting them harder, but we're doing it with that uh, that elevated art form worth of equipment to make us more efficient hunters. So I would like to see. Uh, I'd like. I, I really do believe that here in the U.S. we're playing the long game as best we can. We've got a lot of science and a lot of money behind the research and genetics and management and harvest. I don't see anybody else really doing it. The, the advantage they have in places like uh, Argentina, they've got just a minuscule demand for, for hunting, a, a minuscule hunting pressure, yeah. what I should say. Do you feel that we're uh, making any big mistakes as a country around duck management? No, I, I don't. I, I, I would, I would, um, I believe the numbers. I'd, I'd like to see, I'd, no, I don't believe we're making any mistakes. How many clients do you have that run around telling you ducks don't taste good? A lot. How many times do you hear that? <laughs> oh, it's such a widely held. You know, and I, and I hate that. I, I you know, uh, Steve, I saw, uh, you ever watch Andy Griffith? You know what I'm talking oh, about? Yeah, old... no, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. There, there was an episode. I watched it because, you know, Don Knotts, man. Oh, yeah. Well, I I love it. Him only getting out, go out with one bullet and shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was an episode. Uh, Opie was friends with somebody that was apparently wealthy, and um, he came over to play with Opie, and Aunt B was putting on airs. And Andy come in and goes, is that Goose? And to put on airs and to impress this this young rich kid, she had cooked a Christmas goose. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, that wasn't but back in the 60s. And that was a big thing. Oh, and that was regarded as like an opulent. Well, yeah. it's in, in, in Christmas Carol. In Christmas Carol, exactly. Dickens. Like, right. like when he wakes up and he's like in a better mood after the ghost of past, present, and future comes and sees him, he wakes up and sends the kid down to go get the goose. Exactly. Now you'd be like, I don't know what the hell you'd send him to get now. And I Big really, old ribeye. Yeah, well, that's what we do. But I really do. I like I like duck. And I, I wish, uh, that's one thing that excites me about y'all's program is y'all get people excited about eating and how to cook and how to prepare and how to do all this stuff with these birds. And, and you know, I, I think it's become a lost art. That's, that's really and truly why I think more waterfowl aren't eating. It's just a lost art. People don't know what to do with it. And if you ever had bad duck one time, yeah, yeah, that's going to last a while. I think that, I mean, I've had a lot of bad duck, but then it's it's not that hard. It's like pretty easy. Well, no, it took a long time, but once you once you learn how to cook and you cook it really well for a decade or whatever, it just seems simple because you learn like a couple basic rules. That's right. And then it's really good, and then you get annoyed with people who don't see that it's good, and you kind of forget the fact that you ate a lot of shitty duck over the years. Life like now I just now duck. I like know what to do. Like like I right. know I can look at it. I know what kind of duck it is. I know what you can get away with with that duck. I cook that duck. It's always good. And now I'm like ah, people are so stupid. But I'm like, well, wait a minute, because I've cooked some bad, meaning typically like grossly overcooked. 
Yeah, that's, dry, that, dry I think that's or, the biggest yeah. mistake is overcooking. And, and uh, unless, that, unless you're yeah. overcooking it in the the right way when it becomes okay, but not overcooking the wrong way. And oh, you know, one of my favorite recipes, and I would tell everybody, you know, how many times you've heard uh, cream cheese jalapeno wrap with bacon? I oh. think you could probably put a dog turd like in it, tastes all right, you know. But um, but it gets old, and it's like I'll tell you a simple recipe for cooking duck that I think any would go over big time is uh, duck breast. If you're going to breast the duck, go ahead and breast the duck. Uh, soak it in olive oil with copious amounts of, of cavender seasoning and sear it on what both sides. What kind of seasoning? Cavender. It's like a Greek seasoning. Okay. I know and, that stuff. And just just hit, hit it a couple of minutes on each kinda side. It kind of has like some cold. green lettering, green and red lettering on a yeah, white like, bottle. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's just cavender's Greek seasoning. And it's just, it, but it's rare. You know, one of my favorite ways to really get you say rid you of You soak a, it in olive oil. Yeah, just put it on the table in a Ziploc bag with olive oil and and that uh that seasoning in there. And I, th- I think that I think something about oil helps it penetrate that meat. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, but it's just great. It's just it's good and it's simple and it's easy. Just don't overcook it. Cook it rare. And I, I was telling somebody one of my favorite uh one of my favorite ways to cook duck is chicken fried. I mean, that, that, you want to get rid of a bunch of duck quick? Chicken fried. Simple. Walk me through that. Breast take take your breast portions, tenderize it. Like beat it with a hammer. Or the back, I, I use the back of yeah, or the back of a knife. Boom. Tenderize it, soak it in milk, uh, season it, dredge it in flour, hot oil. And uh and I, I like to make a couple of uh dipping sauces. My favorite of what we call Jezebel sauce. I got it from somebody over in Arkansas, but it it's vaguely uh Remember that band Gene Loves Jezebel? No. They have a song Jezebel. <laughs> uh, no. It's good anyway. Jezebel sauce, a dipping sauce, it uh equal parts of orange marmalade, apple jelly, and really good coarse ground horseradish. And uh um, well, say that again because I got a brand new horseradish patch that is going insane. Boom. Equal parts, equal parts of horseradish, orange marmalade. So shred apple your own jelly. horseradish. I buy it out of a jar. You buy prepared horseradish. Prepared. But it's gotta be the good. Some of them no, a little yeah, weak. No, I like I'm the strong. You, man. One of our guys that works with us, Byron, he made me some prepared horseradish. And then he gave me the roots, and I planted them. And man, that stuff is like a jungle already. That's pretty cool. But but it's a very prolific yeah, plant. I'd like to have some. That, that's just the way to get rid of a lot of duck quick. I, I think we owe it to the resource to learn how to cook one good dish anyway. Don't you? Yeah, but uh, uh, tell me one more time, man, because I'm all hung up on the horseradish. All right. So prepared horseradish, marmalade, orange marmalade, apple jelly. And so, so take take the jars, take the jellies, and put them in your microwave just to get them to where they're liquefied enough you can mix them. Yeah, yeah. Put in your horseradish, shake it up. Maybe put in a big uh, big dollop of uh, uh, yellow mustard. Is this apple jelly or apple butter? Apple jelly, not yeah. apple butter. A- the, the yellow stuff, apple yeah, jelly. Yeah. And then do what with that again? Liquefy it. Get it in the microwave. Get it warm where you can mix it. Orange marmalade, same things. You can mix them. Just put them in a jar. Put your horseradish in, shake it up. Yeah, it's excellent. It, and and the next day is going to be even better. That's when everything. Oh, but that's your dipping sauce. In. It's a dipping sauce. You're not soaking the duck in there. Oh no way! Soak duck. Soak. See, if you're going for chicken fried duck, soak them in milk. Oh, that's your dipping sauce for chicken fried. Okay, I, th- I thought you were laying out a whole well, new recipe. Good. No, but no, I'm no, all no, excited about anything. my horseradish. Patch, no, it's good so. on anything. It's, that, that dipping sauce will be good on anything. Really? Yeah. Look at that, Yanni. Like Should it. I give you some Sound, of my roots, man? Sounds good. Ah, uh, not quite yet. Our, our garden's not ready for. To accept plants right now, I don't but tell we're just I just don't have a garden ready to plant it. You, you've had a garden for years. 
Yeah, but it's every year it keeps moving and it's just not right. <laughs> so this year we actually your don't. Garden, your don't, garden got up and moved. We don't have you're a trying garden to, You're trying planted. to fine tune. Yeah. And so this oh. year we're actually, we're back in there with the mini X and it'll oh, be. Oh, like it'll you're be, going. It'll be ready. You're next going next year. level. Yeah. But uh, I brined and smoked a bunch of ducks the other day. Absolutely. And man, did those come out good. I had, at first I did one hole next to a pheasant and that was so good. I decided to do more. So I pulled out, I had some, uh, what do they call it when we do it with the breast and the thigh and the leg together? Airplane? Something like that? Oh boy. There's a, and you smoke I didn't know there like was a that. name for it. I call it the thing I stole from the University of Montana no, Wild Game a, Cookbook. There's a name if you get a chicken that way. Spatchcock. No. Oh, okay. Explain. Anyways, doesn't matter. Um, and I had some mallard breasts, um, and then there was two, it was, I don't know, gadwall or something other, ringnecks maybe, something random that had just, you know, come into the, uh, you know, spread that I ended up with at home. And there was two scoter breasts oh with the skin on. Where'd you get scoters? North Carolina when I, oh, a couple okay. of years yeah. ago. So they've been in my freezer for a while. And they all got the same treatment, brined, throw on the smoker. And uh, the mallards are just eating just so good. Just fantastic, you know. I gave them a little uh, Mastodon, light dust and Mastodon seasoning on there. And I get to the scoter, and, man, I'm feeling it. And I'm like, man, it's just like, it's like squishier, like softer. Even though I cooked in the same amount of time, I cut it open, and it's just beautiful, like mid-rare inside, but just tender and that nice that the, like there's like a nice fat cap and then the skin's all crispy from the because i did a really hot scoter fat scoter fat and i mean just touching the two you'd be like man i'd rather eat that scoter because you can just tell you know how you can touch meat and yeah, tell it's gonna be but tender I'd be looking at it thinking about <laughs> that skin on there man well yeah i, I don't <laughs> think it wasn't just the skin it was kind of like that bear that you had that one time that when you brined it and smoked it, it tasted like you were eating smoked fish. Yep. Same thing with that scoter. I mean, it just tasted like a fish. Um, I wasn't there. That's all they eat. And I'm no Dr. Duck, but I can tell you that a lot of that fish was laid up in that skin. Mm-hmm. And if you'd have been here, if you hadn't been playing hooky, you'd have heard from <laughs> the meat scientist about why that is. Oh. Why that fishiness is in that fat and what fat does and how it functions but you don't know i don't know i haven't listened to that podcast yeah so to cook so to cook Scoter, Mingus liked it but yeah tell me <laughs> t- tell no, me no, tell I'm, me I'm what a, you do I'm, with a, I'm, a, I'm asking i'm oh, asking, asking i'm asking too? the expert so to cook that scoter well, i'm not a scoter expert but if I, had, if, if I had to like come and cook a scoter um get the fat out oh i would get the skin off there yeah. any of those fish eating ducks i would get the skin off yeah Hansi says he, because uh, I ran this by Hansi earlier too, and uh, Hansi, why don't you tell him what you told me? Oh, I try to avoid smoking diving ducks. I feel like it just, it, it makes it, if it's already fishy to begin with, it's just going to like enhance that, mm. that fishiness. Mm. I feel like it just makes, makes it, it into it, smoke fishiness. Yeah, it just makes it like that much more nasty. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's, I, I like to skin, I like my diver ducks, like skin them. You know, put them in. I love making meatballs out of diver ducks. I think it's like, you know, mixed with some pork fat. You know, it's like a little guilty, but I think it goes great. We used to take some divers, the divers that weren't that great, and skin, you know, pull the skin off them, cut them to very thin strips, and put like fajita seasoning on them. 
and yeah. do it likely like sear them like that. And then you got your peppers and onions and salsa and, and it's just it just it's just at that point it's just stuff to eat. Yeah, it's just like it's like stuff to eat. That's, it's stuff that's eat. That's good. It's good. Yeah. And you're like glad you got them. It's better than buying some stupid junk from a grocery store. Yeah, yeah. I just like, never look down on them. I'm not shooting scoters <laughs> anymore. What about have you ever had you ever used waterfowl for hamburger? But make, make making like, a burger. You've had venison and bacon burger. No man, I've never made a duck burger. That's a good oh, idea it's though. Great. Oh, it's great. Yeah, and, and and get the bacon ends. So you're making like a bacon burger. Put some cheese in there. Really? Oh, it's good. Duck yeah. meat burger. Oh, absolutely. I'll do that. Absolutely. Any duck. Well, not sea ducks, maybe, but but the other ducks. Yeah. Uh, can so you work all over the world? We've been talking about that, but I want to uh, hit on something real quick just for people who might become interested and in wanting to deal with you a little bit and associate with you. Is uh, you do you book you do you help people book trips here in the here in the U.S. You know, in the United States, here what we do, Steve, is uh, the short answer is yes and no, because because what we do is, is with long term relationships, we just don't have the the time to book your hunt to say Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And and really truly, that really does crowd me as a middleman. That really makes me kind of pushes my middleman boundaries. If you're calling me to book a trip to Oklahoma, but I've been to Oklahoma and some of these states on our U.S. hunt list, we call it Canada and the United States, and I've been to these guys just like I've been elsewhere, and I know they're going to do what they say they're going to do. No guarantee of duck limits every day, but they're going to do what they say they're going to do, and we put you in touch with them on our website, their name, their contact information. I really feel like and you don't pull anything out of that. No, we just we we we. So we people can over. vet like if people hear you. And they're like, ah, oh, you know, I, I I got a good feeling about that guy. They and they want to vet a duck trip. Mm-hmm. They can call you and and you'll give your two cents on Absolutely. what your experience or what the rumor is. That's right. We've got we've got the, de- the descriptions written up at US Hunt List just like we do at getducks.com, but still call That's a me. website US Hunt List. US Hunt List. It's just a part of getducks.com. So people can get there by going to getducks.com. That's right. Okay. Click on US Hunt List and boom and go take a look at it. If you see a hunt you like and you still got questions about, call me, inbox me, whatever like that. You know, we just look at it like a value-added service and in a way of uh, of working to – I kind of look at it like a gateway drug. You know, you think of a kid sitting out here in the uh, middle of nowhere, uh, he shot his mallards and his pintails and his gadwalls or his wood ducks or whatever, and they come to us and it's like, well, I want to I collect. I want to go do some stuff. Go to New England. You can get the scoters, the eiders, the long tails. Go knock some st- real exotic stuff off. And now they're heading down that slippery path into, I want to collect. And and, it, and they should be collecting those different experiences. And um, But, yeah, so we, we work with U.S. hunters and Canadian, U.S. outfitters and Canadian outfitters to, just to put you together. But what I want to see is if you want to go to uh, a different place in the U.S. or Canada, I want to put you in touch with them. Get in touch with them quickly because it is a very subjective. Why are you going to Canada? What do you want to shoot in Oklahoma? Why are you going to New England? Do you want to shoot eyes? Do you want to shoot scoters? Start working with that outfitter to get that get that thing right. You know, when we start talking about foreign countries, firearms and hunting licenses and permits and language barriers and money wires and stuff like that. Now I'm coming in and bringing a whole whole different ball game to that that equation than I would be just sending you to Oklahoma. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, I got one follow-up question. Have you Lay hunted? Have you hunted a duck in Latvia or any of the Bal- oh, Baltic, Baltic states? I have not yet. You haven't hunted Latvia. I have not. Have, I have Ugh. not yet. Duh. Neither is Giannis. <laughs> have not. Me and Yanni want to go there and hunt so bad. 
I'll, I'll put something together. Let's go. <laughs> oh, can you can you work whatever magic you work around the world, but work in Latvia for us? Maybe. <laughs> well, here's the deal: is Yanni's been kicking it around for quite some time, but he, you know, he just, he can't make it like a full time job as e e scouting Latvia. I feel like mm. I just can't get a real solid commitment out of you as the host of the show that we're like <laughs> we're gonna do it because I need to have it laid out. Like <laughs> I need to have it laid out. <laughs> All right, we'll keep working at it. Yeah, do in, just, in a spare moment, run the getducks.com process on Latvia. I will. I need to get over that part of the world anyway. It, it's bigger than just Romania, that part of the world. I need to get over that part of the world and take a look. Show me your ring, Yanni. It's a All Latvian right. power ring. It's called a Namase. Very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got another question, actually. Yeah, All right. Yeah, that's, got cool. Good. that's cool. I'm, I'm just curious about, like, mouth calling. Oh boy! And I mean, I know that there's like, there's places that it's still practiced, right? I mean, in the United States, not like not even going out of the borders, but like explain what it is: calling ducks and geese with your mouth. Like, oh, I, only, I'm not I'm only not, your own vocal. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not. You know, going to be the <laughs> like yeah, a good example of it. But like, here. but like, I want to. I'm curious, like, what your experience has been with that? You know, like what I, I know. Uh, Boy, Heidi, you know, the first time I ever saw mouth calling was in Tennessee on Real Foot Lake. And this was many years ago. Oh, many years ago. And they're, they, they use these calls over there. The, the typical traditional Real Foot Lake call has it, got a metal reed. And it it's a real high pitch. Bzz, 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 you know, and when those ducks start getting in close, getting in close, they start anking them. Ank, 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 ank. Start shouting. And that, that's how they finish those birds. That's very traditional, real foot lake style calling. I've seen the same thing in Netherlands where they'll, they'll ank them. They don't, they don't call it anking. They just start anking. And, and, uh, and when you're saying this, that means that with their voices, they are saying the ank, word ank, ank. Ank, ank, What? And calling those Is birds it meant to in. Be like, eh, 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 eh. Oh, exactly. No, it's, it's <laughs> you're, loud. You're it's loud. Exactly. Good job. It's loud. And, and I've seen you take it to a whole nother level. Now, here, here, here in the U.S., I know that the guys that are hunting swans, your swan, they're, they're probably going to call them with their mouth, especially, especially the, uh, the, ton, the tundra swans. Yeah. They're going to call them with their mouth. I can't. Do that call. No, I can't do that. Come on, just whistle. do the call. But you go I'm over, over here you go calling over to, my ass off. Just do the call. <laughs> you go over. You go over to uh, Azerbaijan again. Those guys call everything. Now they'll use electronic calls at times, but it's not enough. They're they're subsidizing it with their own calls. In fact, we posted somewhere on our uh, Instagram. Uh, we posted one of the one of the duck guys over there. They let you can hear the electronic call faintly in the background, but he's running through the, all the species with his mouth, and it's un, it's unbelievable. Huh, yeah, you know. So when you come back from Azerbaijan, you know you are hunting all over the world. Is there like a is there a, a any kind of specialness that comes with hunting where you first started? Yeah, I I, I think I know what you're asking, and it's like the more you hunt the more you see and the different stuff you do it's like it's like this this uh this thing for hunting at home yeah you know it's, it's like it's like it's so strange and different from home but then at the same time it's so much like home and and it, it just it really uh it really gives me a fidelity for home hunting just like i did traditionally at home i think that's what you're asking yeah how how we hunt ducks here is, is way different than how they hunt ducks everywhere else and and i you can't, same as hunting those oscillated turkeys the way we started, you can't paint yourself in a corner 
the world's a lot bigger than our backyards. I've shot ducks. Uh, for example, here we are in Montana. I know y'all shoot waterfowl up here, but let's think about it, man. We're in the mountains. Water runs downhill, and I feel like I spend most of my life in the lowest line places on our shooting ducks. But I have shot a, a pair of Andean geese at 16,000 feet. No, really? In, in Peru, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Cool. I've, I've shot them. I've shot them on the Barren Sea in January. I've shot them in the timber in this. I've shot them at night by light. I've shot them at night by, by moonlight. I've shot them with naked eyes. It's a very, you know, how people hunt around the world is, is very different. One of the craziest things was in Russia. We were shooting eiders on the White Sea, and they Russia has no basis, no concept for duck hunting. None. Zip. It Kill the duck. That's it. That, that's very practical Russian hunt. So we're going to go out eider hunting. I brought some decoys. No, no, no. We don't need those. It, it, was, it was like a James Bond movie. We're in a metal speedboat. He, he's going as fast as he can, and, and we're up beside the eiders. And I've got my legs out on the boat so I don't fly out when we hit a wave. And I'm holding on with one arm and shooting with the other. But I thought you were going to say you were throwing dynamite into it. No, no. It, it, <laughs> was just, it, it, it was just, you know, right about the time you think you've done it all, somebody shows you another way to shoot a duck. And, you know, I, I, like, I, like, I like experiencing that. The, yeah. the writer, Ian Frazier, he told me a really good story. He spent years in Siberia writing a book about Siberia. And he just he was telling me about he finally gets an invite to go out with these guys to hunt. They were out to hunt some kind of seal or sea lion. I can't remember what they were going for, but they're like Siberian Inuit. I can't, what do they call like they, There's a different name for the I don't know. like Eskimo, Eskimo or Inuit peoples who live Inuit, off Siberia, yeah. I believe. I, they might have a different word. Either way, he's with them and they go out and they have a bullet. <laughs> there's a bullet. <laughs> And they go on the most like hellacious motorboat ride, you know, going through the seas. They get there. They're just getting tossed around by waves. He's seasick the whole time. The whole time there's like seals out in front of them, but they can't shoot because they got like a bullet. And they eventually get it where a guy gets just the right shot and shoots the bullet and kills the thing. And they start heading back and he's getting more seasick and he's soaking wet. He's like, I don't know how these people can like, how can they do this? Like, how can they even stand this kind of thing? And he says, high up, he sees this duck, <laughs> like this duck crosses over the boat and it starts losing altitude and drops down into this distant bay. And he said, that boat <laughs> turns in that direction. He's like, no. That's why. <laughs> they went and spent the rest of the evening <laughs> looking for a duck. <laughs> I like to jump shoot ducks, pass shoot ducks, decoy ducks, but I found it with turkeys, man. Like exactly. I want to hunt turkeys in like leaning against a tree, trying to call a turkey. Like a called in turkey means a lot more to me. Right. A lone pressured called in turkey means a lot more to me than than bushwhacking a turkey or ambushing a turkey or getting turkeys that just run across the field because they have never seen a decoy in their life and then they stand there for 20 minutes. Right. Like, I like that turkey that comes just in after, like, an excruciating amount of time and he doesn't want to do it and eventually does it. I like that. But a lot of stuff, I just take it as you get it. I, I agree. Yeah. No, I mean, it's that, it's that relationship. You feel like you earned it that way. But sometimes birds just play different rules. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, I'll take a wall. I mean, short of throwing dynamite in the water. 
Yeah. I'll take a walleye hot. You know, they're <laughs> yeah. coming on bait. That's great. Coming yeah. on bobbers, I'll take it. You know, it's like it's, I, I don't need it. I don't need it to be as I don't need it to be that I vertical jigged it. You know, I'll just take it. I unabashedly prefer hunting ducks over water. That's I don't know what it is like ducks jump shoot water. decoys. Like, I agree. But something about like a cornfield, cornfield alfalfa. I just it doesn't it doesn't get me in the same spot. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Yeah. But. I agree. All right, Ramsey Russell, thanks so much for coming in. How uh, tell us how. I know we, we talked a hundred times about getducks.com, but how, how else can people find you? Check us out on social media at Ramsey Russell Get Ducks. That's a great way to keep up, especially when the world's turning and we're traveling to keep up with where we're at and what we're doing. Just All to, one word, Ramsey Russell, Russell Get, get ducks. ducks. No, like, tons of un, A underscore S underscore S no, underscore. No, okay. don't confuse everybody. At Ramsey <laughs> Russell Get Ducks. And you're on Instagram and whatnot? That's it. All right. So go check them out on Instagram. Ramsey Russell, get ducks. The great Ramsey Russell. Thanks for coming. We, we, we came in with an applause. We're going to go out with an applause. <laughs> no. Thank y'all. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank y'all very much. That was fun. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide Armory's products are military and professionally formulated and approved, featuring a groundbreaking graphene-infused ceramic coating that is safe for all surfaces, providing unmatched protection for any firearm. Discover a new standard in gun maintenance. Order your advanced cleaning kits today at RiptideArmory.com. Riptide Armory, relentless performance for your firearms.